And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This is the Hacker Report for today, a busy day. It's Monday, July 9th, 2018. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us. Have we got a program lined up for you? We've got the first half hour covering some very important hot points. We could easily do a 12-hour program just today, just given the amount of headlines. The bottom of the hour, we're going to be graced by Gerald Salenti. Honest to goodness, Gerald Salenti, one of the best, the best of the best in terms of economists. And then we've got Trends uh, Research Institute. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Trends Research. If you, you know, if you, if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't, uh, subscribed to Trends Research, you, you need to do that. Trends Journal, that is. Um, and then David, uh, David, Dave Janda from, uh, um, Dr. Dave, Dave Dr. Janda. Dave Janda. That's right. Eight to nine. And then of course, Peter Barry Chalka closing us out so i'm excited about that we had a great patreon conference last night i want to thank everyone who supports our our efforts and on the the patreon thing go ahead um we noticed that attendance was kind of low and we have been having internal email issues here uh with our our i guess our server-based email uh for whether it's hagman and hagman or hagman report it's been showing up with a a heavy spam score even amongst ourselves so we Probably, uh, Eric, I don't know how many invitations that you sent out yesterday. But, but it doesn't matter, but don't, yeah, just, we're gonna, let's not give the enemy any more ammunition. We're to going to, uh, yeah, we're gonna have a new, a new way of, uh, people to, who are members of the, through Patreon to, to come on on Sundays and join just by going to the website and pressing a, a button. Right. You'll get, and, and we'll get the email invitation are. too, but in case it doesn't come through, you can, uh, there'll be another way you can access it. So that won't yeah. happen again. And if you're listening to this and you, and you did not, and you, you wanted to join Patreon, but you couldn't for any reason, do me a favor. Okay. And, and if that's you, and if it's legitimate, and I'm serious, uh, uh, send me an email, doug at hagmanreport.com. Really simple. Let me know. If, if you couldn't get, if you, if you wanted to be part of that broadcast or the, uh, the conference last night on Patreon, and you are a Patreon member, but for some reason you didn't get an email or you, you got it and it was relegated to your spam folder or whatever, do me a favor. Let me know. I will. I don't know what I can do to make it right, but Doug at HagmanReport.com, we're going to work on that. And right. I, I don't know. This is unrelated. We don't have to talk about this too much, but uh, even text messages amongst friends or family, yeah. people aren't getting them. Uh, I'm having people... Sending me screenshots of their phone saying, see, I sent you these texts, you didn't get them, uh, and, and vice versa. So I don't know if something else bigger than that's going on with communications, but. You, you know, way. it just, it just, it angers me because we know, we know, we know. Joe, you know, we know about the, um, the NSA. We know about the spying. We know about the capturing of all text messages, of all communications. Yeah. It is not a conspiracy theory anymore. No, and we got an email. And, um, and, wait a second. Let me get this off my chest. It was 2013 when uh, when a callback showed up on my phone, a ringback, NSA, Utah Data Recording Center. And, and that, of course, sparked something 
uh, it actually, that began the process of, of a, of a, a costly defamation suit against me. All right. Now here it is 2018, five years after the fact. A suit is going on that was launched in 2015. And I'll tell you something. If there's not enough prima facie evidence out there right now to prove that I was right, you know, it's, uh, how do you prove something like that? I, I, I don't carry a, at that time and st- today I still don't carry a cell phone with me. How do you, how do you, how do you prove something like that? So don't call me a liar, by the way. And, 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 so I just want to get that off my chest. And if, if we don't have enough prima facie evidence to this point, uh, about being spied on, then I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Everything is a conspiracy. And I'm just nuts. Well, well I'm going to tell you something. It just, it just, it just, it just really trips my trigger. Well, one, you know, another thing, I think it was in the... And I'll get this, by the way. I'll read, I'll read, I'll read about this in some court filing tomorrow or yeah, the next day. Go absolutely. On. It was, I think it was in last night's Patreon chat. Uh, and or it was in our, in our emails from last week. Somebody, a listener, talked about how they, they... We had one person from Australia in Patreon yesterday. I don't think this was from them. Hey, mate. But another person from Australia, or it could be the same person, could not, is not allowed to access our shows on YouTube. Or, John, you told me this, right? Okay. Brisbane, Australia. Okay, so it wasn't the person on Patreon. So when they, and, and John even sent them uh, direct links to the Global Star watch feed, and they did not receive them. And this is another example where John had to send the screenshots of him sending the links to somebody. This is a whole separate thing from what I was just talking about. It's ridiculous. So people are not being able to access our show in other countries, and they are being blocked from a number of ways. Either, either, uh, the YouTube saying, you're, this video is not available in this country. Uh, you know, Twitter, or, or even the, the, uh, website itself. You know, you're not allowed to view, uh, you know, this website in this country. That is another way it's happening. It's going to go to that level to where they're banning people at the ISP level, and they're, you know, it, they could digitally find out who half the people, who, who half our audience is and how they listen or view live and figure out how to cut those people off from ever being able to, to listen from that IP address again. So we have to also get smarter and, and figure you know, out tricks and how to turn this stuff around. I got, I got an email today from someone, uh, it was at, uh, 940, if you want to know, it was at 942 this morning, Eastern time saying, why, why, you know, what did I do to upset you? Okay, this is a a fairly good friend. Um, However, we only communicate generally by email because of, for a lot of reasons. Um, And that came through. So anyway. That that one came through. Right, which was really strange. So I went back, I looked, and, and there's no emails prior to that. Okay, so I'm thinking, what did I do to this person to, to anger this person? So, at any rate, um, so I was able to get somebody to contact this person. This person contacted me by telephone. And, and come to find out, this individual's wife underwent a very serious operation and, and, uh, wanted to get in touch with me. And I felt, I felt horrendous. I mean, I felt horrific. I, it was just like, oh my goodness. But, but as you said, the emails were not showing up. There was nothing in the spam. Emails are not getting to us. Our emails are not getting to others. And it's, and, and you may think, well, you're doing something wrong. No, we're not. We've got the best tech, Eric the tech. He's, 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 Joe, I gotta tell you, you know, it's, it's a, it's a new world. We are, we are really in a, in a, in a war right now. 
and uh, I'm ready for battle, okay? I, I don't care what anyone thinks, what anyone says. I am ready for battle. I am battle ready. I'm prepared because we have a bunch of morons out there. A more a, a bunch of a bunch of lobotomized liberal mm-hmm. Marxist morons that can't even tie their their shoes. Or, and and know, those are the followers of the, of the people who right uh, set the agenda, the people who create the talking points, the people who uh, you know formulate and are the deep state. You have the what we call the deep state, which is basically the liberal agenda, and the people and personnel who are able to put that agenda into. Uh, implementation. Then you have the followers of that agenda. You know the uh, uh, the comedians like the Michelle Wolfs on her what, Netflix what special. A, what, what, what was a it? Like a, uh, what, what a scumbag! It was like a, creating a holiday for abortion. I don't know how many people saw I, that. I, I watched that and I wanted. I didn't watch wretch. that, but I'm I'm going to cancel my scumbag my Michelle Wolf is in my personal opinion. Uh, you know, if you didn't see that celebrating abortion, and and then there was this video, Joe. I don't know if you saw this. It was a, a video that made its rounds on Facebook. I think I sent it to you. Is it the one with the people playing with the... Playing with aborted yep. fetuses. Look, we can't authenticate this, but it certainly looks like it. Okay, you, these are some sick people, and and for Americans, or so-called comedians that, are, that aren't funny, like this Michelle Flippin' Wolf, okay, in, in my view... Uh, well, I'm not a protest or boycott guy, but I uh, I'm canceling my Netflix subscription. They Absolutely. did the Obama thing, and now they're doing this. They, they stuck up for that Amy Schumer. Uh, they even changed her whole rating systems because she was getting such horrible reviews on her comedy special. And they have really um, been putting on. I mean, I don't know how many people saw this. Somebody, a few people emailed it to us. There was something that they put up. A, a I think it was a production uh, from a Central or South American country. But it had to be taken down because of pedophilia. It showed like a nine and eleven year old girl apparently, uh, you, you know, masturbating. Okay, there is so much sickness. It, yeah, and, the, but, the implication of it, uh, right? There is so much sickness across the land. You know, this country is suffering from a moral illness, and and well, basically the entire globe is. Uh, and, it's not just America. Yeah, yeah. So, but before this gets away from me, and, and I apologize. Look, um, President Trump is reportedly going to announce his Supreme Court pick. Let me explain something to you, okay? As far as the liberal, democratic, uh, socialist, socialist, communist uh, are concerned, it don't matter. It doesn't matter unless they pick Merrick Garland. It wouldn't matter. They're already protesting. They're already planning protests right here. Protests are already planned in 12 cities across the United States. It doesn't matter unless it's Garland that they pick. It doesn't matter. We are we are at a at the at the point of crisis where the, at the point of civil war, and you're going to have to decide which side you're on. Not not I'm not speaking to, to, to our core audience, but I'm talking about the people out there who are well. You know, I just don't know. No, you do know. You know what's right. You know what's biblically correct. You know that this country is a Christian nation. Stop listening to the the echoes of Obama, the legacy of corruption, the legacy of deception, the legacy of, of BS that this man, Obama, for eight years had facilitated and accelerated into this country. And the globalists like George W., George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton can't keep his, you know, little dangling participle in his pants. 
okay, making making the Oval Office the oral office. Uh, you've got this entire length of of degeneracy in, in this country. And then you've got Christians who are so apathetic in my view, and I'm a Christian, so I can, I can speak out. It's like, it's like, you know what? It's like part of the family. My son, my daughter, they get out of line, I can, I can yip at them and say, hey, I can correct them. Well, the Christians, you're too busy yipping at the, at the ankles of other Christians, you can't get your head out of your collective asses to, to, to say, this is not right. This is not right. You're, you're too busy worry, worrying about uh, making sure your your legacy is to take down others instead of fighting the the, the real villains, and that's how you that you know what you know what's sad to me that's how your measly miserable putrid life is going to be uh, is going to be remembered. And if those are hard words, then then so be it. Just make sure when I get the transcription in, in the legal in the legal documents, which I'm, I guarantee I'll get by the end of the week. We're already on the way here. Uh, yeah, just make sure that I'm quoted correctly. All right. So tra- protests are already planned. So we're the, in the middle the, of a civil the war. Question is, I guess, and is it important? Out of the four names that have been announced by President Trump, which would conservatives prefer? And uh, of the four. We know one. There's controversy surrounding Kavanaugh, who apparently uh, was, uh, I guess, essential in writing the Roberts Obamacare decision to, to say it was a, a legal tax implemented by Congress. And there are uh, other conservatives saying, "Well, that's not true. You know, th- you know, that's false. Uh, basically, false you know, you know, advertising. I, I, whatever. Ain't that Amy Barrett? I'd love to see. Honest to goodness, Joe, I'd love to see somebody like Larry Clayman in there." Look, I know it's not going to happen, all right? But wouldn't it be just refreshing or, or, or a constitutionalist? Right. I, look, I don't now, care. I would have said that about Judge Napolitano. John mentioned him oh, a few weeks that's ago. That's not going to happen. You know? He, you know, he's for open borders. Napolitano? Yeah, I, I saw a video last week. I him. can't keep up, all right? It's really weird. Borders. What's so hard about borders, language, and culture, like Michael Savage says? What's so hard about it? What, what, what's so difficult about understanding the Constitution of the United States of America? What is so difficult about that document? Not this, not a living and breathing. Just, just follow the. Don't make law. Reaffirm the Constitution of the United States of America. And you know what, Joe? If if Donald Trump nominate whoever Donald Trump nominates, um, I, I pray to God on my knees. Whoever that person is follows the Constitution of the United States to the right. letter and to the intent. And that's one of the things that we, we don't have enough time to talk about tonight, at least not in this segment, but the Supreme Court, the history of the Supreme Court, when it became relevant, when it stopped uh, saying, yes, this is constitutional, no, this is unconstitutional, versus when it started to set precedent and set laws itself that were extra constitutional based on the personal beliefs and ideologies of the justices. When did they become a court that decided what was and was not constitutional to the court we see today uh, creating laws out of thin air, creating constitutional rights on their based on their own ideologies? Specifically, uh, Roe v. Wade being the you know the biggest, the most controversial Supreme Court decision in, in the Supreme Court. I, I want Roe v. Wade to be. The- 
Just look, it's not going to be overturned. We, we, of, of course, we want it to Make be overturned. Make it a fifty-state civil war, then. Ta- and Tommy Lawrence said, you know, you, uh, I saw this today, and she's been taken to task for this, saying, you know, this is the wrong. Oh, asking for Roe v. Wade to, uh, to be Peter, overturned gonna, on this. Uh, oh, is, you're, you're asking for the wrong. Peter, fight. if you're listening, take it easy, buddy. Yeah, we're going to talk about this later. I don't agree with Tommy Lawrence. I, we need to have this fight in America. We need to. to I mean, I'm ready. Let, well, I'm ready to go. At right the very now. least, let the states decide. If they want it to keep it legal or not, no. At the very least, it, it, look, the, the look, Supreme look, Court look. should ban it. I agree, a hundred percent. Abortion should be it's legal. Not even a law. Okay, Greg Jackson has, has talked about this. Right. So the Supreme it's Court, not can, it's not a law. It's not the law of the land. You know what? If that was the case, Dred Scott would be the law of the land. I almost said a naughty. <laughs> right. In Argentina, there are thousands of people tonight praying in the streets that and the law of abortion does not become legal in their country, as they see. They say it is not. A right, it, it is a tragedy, and uh, that's on that story's on the New American. You can uh, check that out. Written by uh, uh, Alex Newman, I believe, who was just on our show a few weeks ago. But they're in mass protesting in Argentina against uh, abortion, and we saw the same thing. I think it was in Ireland earlier this year, and Soros poured tons of money, and they ended up legalizing the abortion of in Ireland. Of course, but Soros wh- never met a, an unborn child. He, he, he didn't want to abort. I got a feeling, right? And then, you know, I guess the other piece of news, important piece of news for today, and we'll announce as the announcement of the Supreme Court justice is, is picked when Peter comes on, we'll, we'll talk about this in depth more. The other news of the day that I found just interesting, you know, three months ago, Hillary Clinton couldn't go away fast enough. Even the Democrats were ready to toss her off a cliff, throw her under the bus and throw away the key and just say, you know, we never want to see you again. Today, they're talking about like she's about to make another run in 2020 for, for president. And we, we see this, uh, you believe, and I think you're right on this, that the, I'm there's an image going you. around, a video right going now. around of them on Listen coach to what plane, which if you look, they're not on a coach plane. They have, they're in huge, you know, leather seats. They're obviously in first class if they are in a commercial air, airplane. But you think this was all set up as, and as Lionel from Lionel Nation said, it's part of a rebranding effort for Hillary Clinton to try to make herself more personable to the American public for her run in 2020. And she has her super PAC. She's been raising money. And we uh, we were looking at both sides of this off air. Would it be good if Hillary Clinton ran against President Trump in 2020? Well, common sense tells me yes, it would, because the people are going to reject her uh, again. Absolutely, they will. But on the other side of this, the deep state apparatus that we have in this country, the amount of corruption at the in the you know highest levels of state and federal governments that would be on Hillary Clinton's side. Would they make sure that they committed fraud the right way or enough fraud this time to make sure that they would get her into the, the presidency? That would be my concern if they did run her. But there was a great argument made. If she were to enter the primary, would she be able to be beat? We saw last time uh, Bernie Sanders beat her in the primary, but that did not matter much as she took over the DNC through her campaign. But all this is being said, all this okay. is being tossed around. It's just speculation because the left has no leader. They have no identity. They have no person that they can say this is our, our candidate. So they're, again, going back to the twice-failed presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, and trying to prop her up for a, another failed run. I don't see it. I don't see her being the candidate any way. Okay. Hillary keeps this okay. hey, as she flies commercial. There's a picture up on there. Thanks, Eric, for that. And if you see those seats that she's sitting in, that's about twice the size of an actual coach seat. And the coach seats aren't made of leather. 
They let anyone on those flying grounds, don't they? <laughs> All right. Now, 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 listen. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, I, I, I addressed this on on my morning show, Doug Hagman Radio Show. Hashtag, can we get a thing? Those listening, how do you do this? Hashtag DHRS. Is that possible, or, or do I have to like go through some application process? All right. So, anyway, I talked about this. Speaking of Clinton, did you hear about this, Joe? South Jersey. Carol Palladino and her husband. No. Boom. All right. Now, okay. Wait, wait. Who, who, okay. who is All she? Right. All right. Who's Karen Palladino? Uh, okay. Uh, the, the, a couple. Uh, is this John, the FBI? No, no. John okay. and Carol Palladino, 73 and 72 respectively. They live in South New Jersey. Saturday morning. Friday, ostensibly. Friday. Here, here's the official story. Friday, they had some sort of appliance delivered to their house. I don't know. Um, anyway, Saturday morning, an earth-shaking explosion at the Paladino residence. Levels the house, breaks windows down, up and down the block, sends the mattress into the roof. Did it I kill mean, the... Ki- kill, one, one killed, one missing, one confirmed dead, one missing, uh, okay. you know, probably, uh, you know, probably dead too. But nonetheless, Carol Paladino. And you might think, okay, stuff happens. I agree, stuff happens. And of course, right away, people Not are, stuff like that. Okay, people are saying, well, well, you know, I, you know, it, it, nothing. But here's the issue, Carol Palladino, and you're not going to find this. And this is the problem because information is being scrubbed off the internet. Carol Palladino was scheduled to testify against the Clinton Foundation and a pharmaceutical company, according to some media reports. Hey, we saw this before this too. week. Yeah, we saw this with, uh, wasn't it a guy from, uh, Haiti who came to New York City, was scheduled to testify, yes. died, was yes. shot the night before, uh, you know, shot in the head, I believe, and, uh, they never found the killers. And then, you know, another interesting story, I don't know if you want to go into it, what, have you read the latest on the Seth Rich? Yes, tomorrow, news conference, uh, now, I, I'd have I don't to, know about uh, this. I, look, I don't know either, uh, I would defer to somebody like Tracy Beans on this. Uh, look, I just don't know. I don't have a good feel. Everybody's so ready uh, and wanting. Everybody's so thirsty for ju- justice in the Seth Rich case. I'm just afraid of seeing people being misled. Now, for those who don't know, this is what uh, I've learned today. It's being reported on the Gateway Pundit. Witness prepared to identify two killers of Seth Rich. And they're saying that one is a DEA agent and one is an ATF agent. The killers, not the witnesses. And I don't know how they know this, but anyway. After two long, hard years of work, we have a witness who is prepared to identify the two killers of Seth Rich. One is reportedly a DEA agent. The other is reportedly an ATF agent, according to Jack Berkman. Now, if you remember, Jack Berkman was actually shot and run over by a vehicle while pursuing this Seth Rich investigation. Hey, when that happens. But what the witness says matches what the police say and matches what we know from the surveillance video. This according to Jack Berkman. So tomorrow he's going to be having a press conference. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't have that information in front of me here. So right one, I think one o'clock. It's, um, I just read it, but, here, but, but you know what, folks, be careful what you, right, what don't you buy into see. it right away. You know, just, just be, look, Seth, the unsolved homicide of Seth Rich, two years tomorrow. Two years tomorrow. And it does, in my view, based on all of my investigative research, I do believe that homicide does 
directly connect to the servers at the DNC. I believe that there was an information exchange by Seth Rich, and, and Seth Rich was deep, neck deep involved in this, in the information exchange. Just by the actions okay. of his family, we know right. something weird was going on. Now, that's my personal, now, let me, let me disclaim the heck out of this because you even, you even mentioned this publicly, and again, you, you're, you're, you're a litigation magnet. So the, these are my professional opinions. Um, but the bottom line is, I would just be very, very, very careful of who you listen to and, and what you, you know, what you're subjected to. Um, but, but I do believe that, that in my personal opinion, Joe, I don't know what you feel. Uh, we're still allowed. Let me check. Uh, Eric, are we still allowed to express personal opinions on, on radio shows? No. I think you have to form it in Can the- I have a second opinion on that? I think you have to form it in the wording of a question. Okay. Yeah. Alex, I'll take uh, unsolved, Did you see unsolved that? homicides for 500, please. So there was uh, on CNN they the, this morning, they were highlighting a clip of uh, from Jeopardy. And I don't know when this episode of Jeopardy aired, but they were, uh, the, the headline on CNN was something like, uh, how smart politically are Americans? Because... Uh, Jeopardy contestants are supposed to be some of the smartest and uh, a man on Je- or a question was asked on Jeopardy who pled guilty to lying to the FBI in 2017 in the Russia investigation one person said it was Gorka another person said it was uh, uh, G- uh, General Kelly nobody got it right and CNN was saying well how can some of the smartest people you know in a country not understand and not know the details of this such important information what and was historic- the question again who was the uh, Trump administration official Pled guilty for lying to the FBI in 2017. Storm and Norman? Schwarzkopf? <laughs> no, General Flynn is the answer, but. Oh, okay. CNN was basically mocking the American public for not being as interested in and as, and as up on their, uh, uh, you know, false criminal. Jeb Magruder? Manipulation and propaganda. And Brian Stelter gave us a roundtable discussion, uh, was part of a roundtable discussion at the Aspen Institute. Uh, over the weekend, and Mark oh, Dice did I a video that. on that. I was supposed to be there for that. If you want a good laugh, go to Mark Dice's channel and watch the video he did from this morning uh, that showcases Brian Stelter and how he said the president is poisoning the minds of the American public and how the <laughs> media is being berated, and it's something that is just so horrible and detrimental to the health of the media and the country that they are innocent, and it's all Trump's fault. Anyway, Gerald Salente, when we come back. Gerald Salente, more class than the whole semester at Harvard. Coming. (laughs) Hey, welcome back to this edition of the Hagman Report on this Monday, July 9th, 2018. Um, You know, I just want to thank everyone, really, from the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of our hearts. We put our, as you can tell, we do put our hearts and souls into the, everything we do. Uh, be it from Eric, the tech, who's just got like six arms going everywhere, buttons and, and knobs and dials and spaceships and whatever, to John over there just having a nervous breakdown and uh, 90% of the time and, and um, you know, it, it's taping him to his, duct taping him to his chair and Joe and, uh, but seriously, we, we thank everyone from the bottom of our hearts. We're just trying to, we're just trying to walk through this. And you, and you know what, uh, speaking about things that, that peeved me off a little bit, uh, people were making fun of Alex Jones and Infowars talking about the second civil war. Now, I did not hear 
his program, the entire the entirety of his program. Or, but look, if if you don't believe that the the, the soil is ripened for a civil war, man, you got you need your head examined. That's all I got to say. And to mock someone like Jones, Alex Jones, um, you're fools. You're an idiot. I'm sorry. You're just you're you're. It's not well, see, right. I think the reason people do this, whether it's President Trump or Alex Jones, is uh, personality beefs. A lot of people's personalities clash, and for that reason, well, stop it. They'll not like somebody. Can we stop it. See, I've met so many people who don't like President Trump because of his ego. That they say he's a narcissist, and you know that might be the what happened to the end of our, our conversation. What happened but, to the decorum? Right. People are now, though, based on those uh, personality traits that they disagree with or, or are unattractive to them, are now saying basically all their information and everything they say or do is is worthless because I don't agree with this about them or that about okay, them. Okay, well, I, one thing I want to say. Okay, socialism. I don't care what modifier you put in front of socialism. It is social. Democratic socialists, it, they're socialists. And there is no, virtually no difference between socialism, Marxism, and communism. No discernible differences. Okay, no practical differences. So, what we are facing is a communist enemy. Now, whether it is democratic socialist, again, there's that modifier. Because the, the socialist communists want you to believe that, that this is a lot different than Venezuela, than, than this old Soviet Union. It's not. Sanders, socialist, meaning communist. Clinton, same thing. All right. I don't want to cut into a minute of time. Uh, of our guest, Gerald Salini is a, is a good, uh, I consider him a good friend. And, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, as I said, he's got more class than, uh, you know, in entire semesters at Harvard. Um, he's, but equally important is the fact that he's got so much knowledge. Here's the deal. All right. I, I, I promote this heavily. Trends Journal. If you're not subscribed to the Trends Journal, you're missing it. You are missing it. You can read history before it happens. It's tomorrow's trends today. Uh, let me I, look. If you're listening to this program, as soon as it, in fact, I'll give you permission right now. Go subscribe to the Trends Journal. All right, please. It's that important. It's really the only economic and uh, uh, future. Uh, Journal a piece of information that I rely upon, upon which I rely. I I got corrected my grammar. So anyway, with that, I'd like to welcome to the program Gerald Seleni, TrendsResearch.com. Mr. Seleni, thanks so much for joining us. I'm fired up today. Ah, thank you, and thank you for your kind words. Well, you know, it, you're talking about a civil war. One of our Trends journals, a couple of issues back, it was USA crossed out. And we had DSA, Divided States of America. So uh, that was four issues ago. And so you can see where this is going. We are in a very divided states of America. Whether it comes out to a civil war or an uncivil war, you know, that, that, it, the, the trend is there and it depends how we move forward, but all the conditions are ripe for a, a real uh, socio-economic explosion. You, you know, I I don't see any way back from this. I, I see the divide so severe, so critical. And, and this, to me, is the legacy of Obama, the legacy of division. 
uh, the legacy of, of chaos and such. Do you see us returning from this precipice, this brink? We have to go in a new direction. The political parties are, you know, you're talking about communism, socialism. You know, we don't have capitalism in this country anymore. I mean, in capitalism, there's no such thing as too big to fail. You know, you rise and fall on your own merits. You know, it's fascism, the merger of state and corporate powers. And that's Mussolini's definition of it, a guy that knew a thing or two about fascism. So we need a new system. I tell everybody, Google up the definition of politician. And they Google it up and it's, you know, someone running for elected office, blah, 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 blah. And the second part is, it's right there, a person who is manipulative and devious, typically to gain advancement within an organization. So, you've got the Democrats and the Republicans, the manipulative and the devious. We need a new system. The system is out of date. And, and to me, that's the only thing that's going to change it. And what I would like to see is what we call, and it's one of the trends in the New Trends Journal, uh, a mid-year update from the top trends of 2018, and we call it blockchain democracy. <laughs> one, of the, one of the richest countries in the world, Switzerland. Oh, and by the way, not only are they the banking capital of the world, now they're moving to become the cryptocurrency capital of the world. They haven't been in a war since eh, about 1850. Again, they're one of the richest countries in the world. If I ask anybody, who's the president of Switzerland? I don't know. No, no one knows. Because they have direct democracy. The people tell the government what they want. We don't have a representative form of government. I mean, they only teach you that in public brainwashing school that they call K, you know, to 12 and, 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 and college to, to PhD. They don't represent us. They represent the people that give them money. Morons and ignorant jerks that buy their garbage call it campaign contributions. <laughs> Adults call it bribes and payoffs. So the answer to me is, and I was talking about the, the education system, and again, going back to the New Trends Journal, the education system was founded in the industrial age to teach us how to follow orders and read and write and doing some math. It's totally antiquated, a new system. And with the Internet, you can have that system. Virtual education. And and, and it, it could happen. Anyway, moving forward. We, we believe in blockchain democracy. You want to go to war? Let the people vote. You like those tax breaks? Yes or no? Let the people vote. Oh, the people are too stupid. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nancy Insane Pelosi is much more intelligent than I am. And so, too, is <laughs> Diane Not-So-Feinstein. Or maybe you like little Chucky Schumer. Hey, Lindsay, did you come out of the closet yet, Graham? How about little Paulie Ryan? Oh, he's quitting, you know. Oh, and he's going to be playing Eddie Munster again when he goes back to make some stuff. Yeah, so who are these little jerks? And, and who are they to tell us what to do? 
So to me, the only new way is to put the future of the nation into the hands of we the people. We pay the taxes. We go fight and die in wars. Not these little boys like Obama or Bush or Clinton that couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. They send us. They don't send their kids. So what I'm saying is, to me, the answer is, and again, the motto of the Trends Journal, as you know, is think for yourself. That's the way I think about it. Blockchain democracy. We the people are in charge. From the federal level, to the state level, to the local level. And, and that's the way it should be. That's right. And that's just the taste, by the way, of, of the Trends Journal. I just, I, I cannot tell you folks strongly enough. I cannot, I cannot recommend this strongly enough. That's what you get. But see, and, and my problem with that is, you know, and it's still the government's fault, is we've seen things like uh, in California, Prop, I believe it was 187 and Prop 8. Uh, Prop 8 was a more popular one dealing with legalizing homosexual marriage where the California voted no. They did not want uh, that to be legalized. Yet the, I believe it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, overruled their vote, said, well, no, that vote was unconstitutional. <laughs> what you say doesn't matter. We're going to go ahead and do this anyway. And until we figure out, you know, how to uh, stop that from happening, those people at these top levels of power from, from uh, you know, I guess obstructing everything that people try to vote on, like we see with Brexit in Europe, that we're still going to be in the same problem. So there's a lot of work to do. And, and, and uh, Mr. Salenta, you bring up a great point that with the technology that we have, with the Internet, we have uh, the ability to, to reach, you know, just about everybody out there who's willing uh, to be a part of it. And, and it gives them the tools and ability to have tremendous input in these decisions if a system was actually set up uh, honestly that, that it could be done that way. But I just don't ever so, see that coming to fruition. Well, again, you could say you never, you never could see it, but if you don't make it happen, it right. won't. Right. And, and, and the reality is that that's why we call it blockchain technology. You make the transaction, it's blocked. You can't hack into it. And you open the system up to everyone. And what the hell are we doing going to a voting place? you got these little jerks that feel important for one day that make you feel like you're a criminal walking in to vote with these lousy, stinking systems. Oh, this blockchain may be hacked. Oh, yeah, like hanging chads might be hacked. Or these lousy, stupid industrial age systems that we have. If we could transfer trillions of dollars a day around the world, could we vote online? Oh, and for the people that don't want to vote online, we'll open the polling place. <laughs> and yes, you're right about the judges. And what we do with blockchain democracy, we tell the court to go do that. You're not in charge of us. You're a bunch of little jerks too, all dressed up in your in your uh, legal drag outfits. Take it easy. We could. You don't have to think for us. We know what the Constitution is. We do not need you to interpret it for us. Can, 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 I, can, I, can I bring you to, uh, to to my court hearing? That's probably going to happen here in a couple of weeks. I'm kidding. Um, I love it though. I love it. Um, we have limited time, uh, Mr. Saloni, so I, I just want to touch a couple of, uh, by the way, thank you for, for saying what you said. Um, what's going on with China? Uh, I've gotten so many emails 
asking um, asking me to ask ask you about China. Yeah, every, um, every day the stock market drops. It's the it's Trump's fault because of what he did with the tariffs. Uh, and we see that we're going to get a little bit of pain for a, a long-term gain. But what is happening is it seems that the media is saying that the trade war is high, is increasing and that, you know, everybody's, you know, the, you know, what do you say, uh, nitpicking well, at each other. There, there's no trade war. With $34 billion worth of tariffs, that's equivalent to 0.1% of China's GDP. They have a merchandise trade deficit with us of 375 billion dollars. The Trump is wrong in blaming the Chinese. You blame the American and European corporations and mm-hmm. and slick Willie Clinton for selling us out and George Bush. <clears throat> they became China joined the World Trade Organization two weeks after nine eleven when no one was watching. <clears throat> what happened was here's the deal. I want to get my stuff made in a slave labor country. I don't have to pay him anything. I could bring the product back here, mark up the prices, and make a lot more money. That's basically the deal. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese, being the Chinese, said, listen, you can make anything you want over here and sell it to all our people. But you got to make it here, and you become a minority partner. You're only 49% ownership. We own 51%. Oh, and you have to give us your technology. We don't know how to do crap because this is 19, you know, in 1994, the total Chinese debt, public and private, was $900 billion. Today, it's $30 trillion. So what they did, all the corporations from Europe and the United States sold the people out to get their products made over there. So the trade war is who would do business under conditions where the person that you're dealing with is making all the money and you're losing it. So there's not going to be a trade war. China has real big problems and the media is misrepresenting this. Yeah. I mentioned they have a $30 trillion trade deficit. Excuse me, a $30 trillion debt. The Chinese, when you look at their latest numbers that came out, investment in the last year is at 1996 levels. You're looking at declines across the board. They are in trouble. Their, their stock market is in bear territory, down 20%, the Shanghai index. The yuan, their currency in June, had its biggest decline since they joined the gang in 1994. They don't want to decrease the value of their yuan for two re- three reasons. Number one, capital outflows. The Chinese are buying up the world. So as their currency gets cheaper, they're going, taking it out, transferring it into other con- countries' currencies and buying what they can. They stopped that from happening in 2015 and 2016. They don't want a weaker currency. The second reason is 77% of their GDP is consumer spending. So they want a stronger currency. And number three, oil. They are the largest energy importers 
in the world. Where's the price of oil now? Oh, yes, hovering around $80 a barrel for Brent crude. Oh, and their currency's going down. Oh, and oil is dollar-based. So now, as their currency gets cheaper, they got to buy more. They have to buy oil with more of their devalued currency. China is at a very critical point. It's ready to have a market crash. It's already in bear territory, and if the Chinese government does... You look at every piece of data, retail sales, investment, exports, it's all down. And another indicator to look at are copper prices. Copper prices are going down rapidly. They call it Dr. Copper because copper is used in everything from high-tech to industry. China imports over 50% of all the world's copper. And now you can see the slowdown. So it's a slowdown in their infrastructure building, a slowdown in retail, a slowdown in their inflated housing market. China has a lot of problems on their hands and $34 billion adds up to nothing. So what, what, how, what is, how does this play out? Um, you know, uh, and China, have they not moved with Russia to create some new gold-backed currency? I think we talked about that last time. Yeah, I mean, and then the, the last thing, the World Trade Organization, you mentioned that. I saw Trump uh, tossed it out there that he might be interested in uh, withdrawing the U.S. from that. But, but China and their economy, what impacts could that have on the U.S. economy? We'll say if it does have a recession or depression type uh, situation. It'll have a moderate effect because we only do about about $129 billion worth of business with them. What's really going to hurt are the countries like Chile, big copper exporters, Australia, you know, iron ore, co- copper. You know, those are the countries it's going to hit the most and the emerging markets that sell them commodities. It's not going to hurt the United States that much because they're still going to buy what they need from us and they want our technology. You know, China has this China 2025. They're going to be the world leader in artificial intelligence and other technology. That's where they're investing their money. But, the China, you know, you, we were, you were talking before, when I, before I came on, the, uh, listening to you, and you were talking about communism and socialism. Let me tell you the hypocrisy of this, as I see it. Again, think for yourself. As a young guy growing up, and I'm the same age as Trump, when I'm a little kid in school, they got me hiding under desks because an atom bomb may go off and I'll be saved hiding under that desk. We gotta watch them commies. Those commies are gonna blow us to little pieces. And then there was a thing called the Vietnam War. We gotta stop them commies. If we don't stop them commies, those dominoes are gonna keep falling throughout Asia and before you know it, and I'm not making this up, they told us they were going to fall onto the shores of California. They taught us to hate those commies all our lives, started wars, killed millions, spent trillions, and now, hey, what are those Chinese? Oh, Chinese Communist Party. Oh, and you listen to their President Xi, how he loves Marx and how the Chinese embrace communism and it's going to be basically the new world order. 
So it's okay for these lousy, little, slimy, nobody politicians like the Clintons, the Bushes, and the Obamas to sell us out to the commies when all it has to do with making the multinationals and everybody else richer. But when they want to take us to war and give up our lives and our future and slaughter innocent people, then we got to kill those commies. Excellent so you tell point. me, what am I missing? Excellent point. No, excellent point. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it okay. It it does kind of uh, boggle the mind a tad there when you put it that way. Um, it, wow. Okay. Um, again, I, being respectful of your time, um, the current strength of the U.S. dollar, job numbers. I mean, where do we go from here? Yeah, let's look at the job numbers. We, we saw, you know, they're saying it's lowest unemployment in, in how many years? Yeah, three point nine unemployment. But just like the inflation numbers, they don't calculate energy and they don't calculate food prices. And we know those have been going through the roof. Uh, it, that's inflation. But the job numbers. You have people who are not counted also, and that's almost a third of the country. So how much, how accurate are these job numbers? Are, and well, are these jobs I mean, being added? I mean, you, you said it. You, know, you still have a high labor force uh, participation rate. It's still low, labor force participation rate. And then when you look at the jobs being created, what was the increase in, uh, of um, wages? About 2.7% yearly. And you mentioned all the things that, again, those little low-life slimy people that typically run for office for to be uh, manipulative and devious, they cook the, the, the inflation numbers so we don't get Social Security and other benefits. So when you put into real inflation numbers, people's wages are going down. And that's why you have millennials at record numbers living with their parents. That's why you have low levels of millennials buying new homes. So we're in a very precarious position right now because the tax cuts that Trump put in, you look at the numbers. I'm not making these up. You're looking at stock buybacks being at record levels. Record levels. Higher than it was at this time in a year than back in 2007 in merger and acquisition activity. The money's not going into capital improvements. So we're in a very delicate situation here. But looking at the delicate situation, the United States is in better shape than any other major nation in the world. You're looking at the European Union. Go back to the June. They said they were going to cut out their scheme of European Central Bank of the, of the quantitative easing by the end of the year. Then they changed that. They're still in negative interest rate territory, and they're not going to raise interest rates until September of 2019. Hmm. So, and then you look at the Japanese, they have negative bond yields. You're looking at European uh, GDP numbers, they're all softer than anticipated. So we're in a very delicate situation here. By the way, I'm a believer. I'm an American. As I say, my blood's Italian, my heart's American. I couldn't be me if I was born in Alta Villa Pina, Vica Quince in Italy. I'm only me because I was born in the Bronx and had the freedom to be the person I wanted to be. So when I say that, I'm an American. You talk about trade issues, I want a self-sustaining economy. I don't want any cheap imports coming in. 
We are the richest country in the world in natural and human resources. Why am I, uh, yeah, I want to buy, I want to buy this jacket I have on. It's an Armani and I like the way he does it. But when I buy other things other than luxury items, everyday items, I want to buy American. And to me, the only way of our future is a self-sustaining economy. What we, the 97% of the shoes and clothing that we're all wearing in America is imported thanks to Bill Clinton because that all began to happen in 1990s. Before there were retail, there, there were, there were, there were factories making all the retail products that we need in the United States. From the Syracuse, China, to the clothing, to you name it. Corningware, oh, Corning, New York. So they sold us out. To me, the, the issue is bigger than tariffs. It's a self-sustaining economy. You make it so no products can come in from other countries that are undercutting our economy because they're doing it with cheap labor. Amen. Just about everything that we've learned about the economy we've learned from Gerald Seleni. Mr. Seleni, we're out of time. Thank you. And from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on with us and to share your thoughts. Trendresearch.com we will continue and to promote Gerald Salenti on Twitter. Well, thank you, and thank you for all that you do and for speaking out for America and the American way. Amen, thank brother. You. And uh, I, I'm going to drive by uh, uh, your hometown and, and take you out to lunch someday. I really do. All right. All right, brother. It. Dr. Thank Dave Janda, coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is a report for a very busy Monday, July 9th, 2018. I just find it hard to believe it's 2018. What happened in 1978? I haven't seen. Well, just asking. I guess if, if you remember the 70s, what's that saying? If you remember the 70s, you really didn't live the 70s. At any rate, um, you know, a lot of things taking place and a lot of really strange things taking place. Again, just a warning out there, okay? You're going to be hearing some stuff uh, about Southridge. Uh, there's an announcement tomorrow. Use your discernment. It's going to be two years tomorrow. Unsolved homicides. Uh, unsolved homicide. I've worked unsolved homicides. In fact, um, I've got an unsolved homicide from 1979 that I have. It's n- never been out of arm's reach, the file. I know who did it. Knowing who did it and proving it, two big different things. All right. I've worked with not just the local police, but also the FBI Quantico and also the Attorney General, uh, the Attorney General's office. And the last contact I've had, you think that these cold cases go cold. The last contact I had with the investigating officer at the Attorney General's office was two weeks ago. 
from a 1979 homicide. And, oh, by the way, it's doubtful that you are, but you know who you are. You know what homicide I'm talking about. And I'll I'll just say this. I'm never going to let you rest. All right. A couple of things. I want to say um, thank you to Jody for your email. Thank you for Susan. Thank you to Susan for your email about the Patreon. Thank you so much for um, for your support, because without your support, we couldn't do what we do. And what we do is we try to bring on guests to raise the intelligence quotient of our show. For example, Dr. David Janda, next guest. This man is one of the one of the brightest, most articulate men that that I've heard. He is an orthopedic surgeon based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, member of a nine-member orthopedic surgery group. I'm not going to read all of his his bona fides. It would take me uh, until tomorrow. Okay, but in addition to being a a, a just a, a top orthopedic surgeon. He's also distinguished himself in the research arena. One of his more notable works is is based um, on an injury injury prevention analysis in the most popular team sports in the United States. On and on. He also gets into the economy. All right. He was appointed by the former Bush administration to the board of. I just want to say this: the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. He, um, again, this gentleman's got more qualifications than I could ever, I'd be taking up his whole time here. Talking about the, uh, Austrian School of Economics, those, we talk all day in, sometimes about the, uh, Keynesian School of Economics. Well, there's a, there's a, a different, uh, viewpoint out there, the Austrian School of Economics. That's one of the things that, uh, we're going to be talking about. But, uh, Dr. Dave Janda is very familiar to most people. Multiple appearances on Fox News, other venues, and without any further ado, and without taking more of his time, Dr. Dave Janda, welcome to the program. Doug and Joe, it's an honor to be a part of the Hagman Report. I've been a long-term fan, and I appreciate all the work you do to educate and empower all of your listening audience. Well, coming from you, that's a a great honor, and thank you for that. Yeah, it is. Uh, My goodness, you know, you've got... You, you're, you've got such a, a vast array of knowledge, of information, inspiration. Your audience is wide. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're humbled to, to, to be in your company. Um, people hate this when I ask this question, but I, where do you want to start uh, this discussion, tonight's discussion? What? I mean, there's so much happening all around. It's like trying to drink water from a fire hose. You <laughs> sure know. Is. So, I, we would, right before you came on, Joe and I were talking about this, and we've got talking points here. But, if you don't mind, what's on your heart? What's, what's, you know, what's first and foremost on your heart? I think it's best when, when we start our discussion, uh, that we talk about the foundation of, of what got me involved in, in the whole issue of healthcare policy. Sure. Ronald Reagan back in 1988, uh, contacted me after he had seen some of the ramifications of our research that focused on prevention and asked me to come to Washington and work on health care policy. 
And I did that. I ended up working in particular with C. Everett Koop, who was the then Surgeon General, who was not only a phenomenal physician and surgeon, but a phenomenal person, as well as Jack Kemp, who was a congressman at the time, but was doing a lot of work in domestic policy with Ronald Reagan at the time. And the reason why they had and Reagan had invited me to come to Washington, it was toward the end of his administration in the spring of 1988, was based on my work in prevention. So many people say, hey, you know, Dave, um, how did you get involved in all this? You have these people from the Secret Service and the FBI and the intelligence agencies and Defense Department, these admirals and generals, come on your show. And and they seem to be long-term and time fan, uh, 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 friends of yours. How does how did all that happen? Because this is not the the standard, if you will, presentation of of healthcare policy that you give, and and a, what a physician would present on a radio show. As, as you mentioned, I host a radio show live every Sunday from two to five called Operation Freedom. Folks can stream it off my website, DaveJanda.com. It's based in the People's Republic of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and and we focus on healthcare and healthcare policy, but we don't do individual pathologic conditions. You know, I have a prostate problem. I have a, uh, a, a shoulder problem. We don't, we don't touch that. We do healthcare policy, but we also do, as you do, geopolitical issues, financial issues. You just had the great Gerald Salente on. Uh, Mr. Salente has been a guest uh, on, uh, on our program. We've been very fortunate with that. But the guests I bring forward are people that I got to know 30 years ago when I started with Reagan, and then as you mentioned, H.W. Uh, Bush had appointed me to a position on the board of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, which was a part of the CDC at the time. And then, and Bill Clinton had, uh, we had tr- tried to implement some healthcare policy issues with him, and then George W. Of course, you know, the, bo- the bottom line is, is that other than Reagan, and whether it was H.W. Bush or Clinton, or W, and forget about Obama, he never contacted us because our focus is on free market, as you mentioned, Austrian-style empowerment of individuals as opposed to empowerment of government. Obama never got in touch with us. But I'll tell you, Doug, I learned very early when when Coop and Kemp and I, we came up with some proposals about how to make healthcare more available, more affordable, and more quality-oriented. And those proposals were what were called medical IRAs, which are now called health savings accounts, about about small businesses being able to pool their resources so they can compete with the big boys to drive insurance rates down, uh, to have high-risk pools for those folks that were uninsured that had uh, diseases so that they did have insurance. Uh, we focused on direct primary care where primary physicians were having a a more, if you will, hands-on approach with patients and could drive costs down because they were involved with folks at an early stage rather than a later stage. We we focused on tri- price transparency where actual physicians and insurance companies actually didn't collude but actually competed. This is what's so frustrating about the this day. The issues we presented to Ronald Reagan in 1988, Coop, Kemp, and myself, very solutions that some people are starting to speak about today, 30 years later. And it was interesting when, when Dr. Coop, who was the head of this, went to Reagan and said, okay, we've come up with a plan. And it's about medical IRAs, health savings accounts, uh, focusing on prevention and wellness, which is kind of my bag, 
the price transparency, the the just the high risk pools and the like. But he said, you know, um, President Reagan, it's going to upset big medicine like the AMA. It's going to upset the insurance industry and it's going to upset the pharmaceutical industry. And Reagan's response was, well, does it help people? And he said, yeah, it's going to make healthcare more available, more affordable, more quality oriented. Hmm. And Reagan goes, go for it. Well, unfortunately, that was toward the end of Ronald Reagan's tenure as president. And HW came in and contacted all of us again about proposals. And Coop, again, presented this information to HW. And HW came back and said, you know, uh, I don't want to make all those entities mad. I mean, you know, we get a lot of money from those folks. <laughs> and, and this is, Doug and Joe, this is when I came to the realization. This is as early as 1989, right after HW came in the office. There really weren't two parties. There was really one party that I call the Republicrats. And the reason is, is because when that information was presented to HW, the response was, we can't do that because it would really upset the powers that be. Pharmaceutical industry, insurance industry, big medicine, AMA. When Clinton came in, we were contacted again. The presentation was made again with the same information now four years later. And Clinton's response was, well, you can't do that. We're not going to make the insurance industry mad, the pharmaceutical industry mad, the big medicine mad. It was no different than what HW had said. And then when W came in, and it was, again, we were asked to present this in, the same response. So I learned very early in my, if you will, time in Washington that lobbyists, big medicine, big insurance, big big pharmaceuticals, what I call the medical industrial complex, pulled all the strings. And when it came to Obamacare, One of the biggest fallacies, Doug and Joe, was that Obamacare really took on the insurance industry. It took apart the insurance industry. It it put them back in their place. The insurance industry wrote Obamacare. And in fact, one of the things that I had exposed was the fact that Obamacare, and there were several people that did this, I was one of them, that Obamacare was really two parts. The first part was hidden in the stimulus bill. And in that portion of the stimulus bill were the rationing boards and the enforcement boards. You see, one of the reasons why I stepped up very early and opposed Obamacare is because it was based on the most unethical and inhumane means of cutting health care costs, which is exactly the model all the insurance industry used. And that is... It focused on the, the cutting of costs through the rationing and denying of care. And my background was if you really want to cut health care costs, if you're really sincere and you want to do it humanely and you want to have people actively involved in cutting their own costs, don't focus on manipulating care. Prevent health care need. It's the single greatest bang for the buck. So here's the example, and this is what Reagan latched onto and why he asked me to come to Washington back in 88. We did a study. You mentioned it. You alluded to it. We focused on injuries in sports. Right. And we found a way to prevent 1.7 million people every year 
prevent an injury and and prevent them from going to the hospital and to the doctor. Now, I, I can tell you as a practicing orthopedic surgeon, and I practiced for my five years of residency and 27 years afterwards, and I retired on January 1st, 2017, because I was not about to play in the Obamacare sandbox as it started to roll out. Hmm. So you were one of the, the thousands of doctors that exited the healthcare industry because of Obamacare. Exactly. Absolutely. And the reason is, is because in January 1st, 2017, that's when the protocols started to kick in, and that's when the electronic medical records issues started to kick in, where when a patient would come in to see you and you'd have to do these electronic medical records, it would, in addition to going to an insurance company, it would also go to the government. And to me, that was unethical. I, I was, I, for 27 years of my career in private practice in that nine member group, we guarded our patients' records like a fort. We never had a breach in our system and we took care of thousands and thousands of people. But now, all of a sudden, January 1st, 2017, every patient that was going to come in to see me, even if they weren't on Medicare or Medicaid, yeah, the insurance company would get the record, but it would go to the government. Wait a minute. It's, I was not about to play in that sandbox. And being an old guy in medicine, I could say, as opposed to the young people who are like, they don't have a choice because they're trapped. They have huge, huge educational expenses they're trying to pay off. They have young families and they can't, they can't just say no mas. And, and being an old guy, I said, I'm done. And I'm going to fight this from another avenue. Now I had started my radio show back in 2010, and I said I'm devoting full time to the radio show as well as my platform, DaveJanda.com, with the extra content we put there. But the point is, is that it all started from this prevention work. You see, that that's the thing the insurance companies don't want to go near. And so we found a way to prevent 1.7 million people from going to the doctor in the hospital every year. Save two billion dollars in healthcare costs. And in that series of studies, Doug and Joe, the total cost of the studies was a thousand dollars. Really? Okay. Yeah. We spent a thousand bucks once and it leads to the prevention of two billion dollars in healthcare costs. And that's what got Reagan's attention. Now, when we did this research, I thought, well, the insurance companies are going to love this. I would they think. Hate it. They hated it. But, but in fact, that doesn't make sense to me. Oh, it does. It does. It didn't make sense to me either. It didn't. And in fact, we started a nonprofit research organization, the Institute for Preventative Sports Medicine, back in 1989. And when I started it, I said, I'm not going to take any money from the sports industry uh, I, I, because I don't want there to be an appearance of a conflict of interest or the equipment industry or anything of that nature. But I thought, well, the insurance companies will step up and fund this because spend a thousand once, save two billion. Hey, I mean, the return on investment is huge. We never, in the, in the almost 30 years it has been in existence, the institute has not received one penny of funding from the insurance industry. And I could not figure it out why until an insurance executive flew in and met with me. I got a call and from New York, from this large insurance company. 
He said, uh, Dr. Jenner, we'd like to meet with you. And I thought, oh, finally, they finally get it after about 10 years. This insurance executive walks in. I'm sitting at my desk, and he says, don't stand up, uh, sit down. <laughs> he goes, uh, I want to tell you why we despise you and everything you do. Uh. I go, what? I, I, I go, I'm the guy who found a way to save $2 billion and prevent 1.7 million people from going to the emergency room every year, not just once, but every year, and we spent a thousand bucks once. I, I should be your poster boy. And he looked at me, he goes, you are a poster boy, you're Jesse James, you're wanted dead or alive. He goes, now, wow. let me spell this out for you. He goes, you know, doctors are financial morons, so let me make this easy. He actually was pretty right, but doctors are, for the most part, financial morons. Um, and if you ever want to decide on something not to invest in, it's if doctors are involved in it. But he, he, <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he says to me, he goes, so let's say the cost of insuring you is a thousand bucks. I go, okay. He goes, uh, the most the feds let us put on that is seven percent after all of our costs. So let's say the cost of insuring you seven percent of a thousand, thousand seventy bucks is your premium. I go, okay. He goes, now let's say we do all those things that you wrote in your book, The Awakening of a Surgeon. Okay, he goes, we had our actuaries go through it. And we figured out the cost of insuring you is no longer a thousand bucks, but it's a hundred bucks. He goes, now even you can figure this out. What's seven percent of a hundred? I go, seven. He goes, right. He goes, wouldn't you rather have 70 more than seven? He goes, the higher insurance costs go and healthcare costs go, the bigger cut of the pie we get. But when, that's why, that's why we will oppose everything you do. And we have opposed everything you, you have done and will continue to do. Okay. Okay. I, I get that. But wouldn't, on the other side of that, wouldn't that decrease the, the, the payout? In other words, I understand that, where that, where, where that, that, uh, obtuse moron that came in, um, but, but wouldn't, wouldn't that say, ultimately save the insurance companies, uh, companies money on the, on the other side of that? So what happens is that they ever increase the premiums, and the public or the government who might be paying the premiums just throw money in the coffers. So I looked at him and I, that's exactly, that's exactly what I posed to him. I said, you know what? This model can only work so long for you because there's going to be a point in time when companies who are paying the insurance bills or uh, these ever increasing premiums, um, or, 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 or people are going to get to the point where they can no longer pay. They can no longer afford your product. And he looked, this was about 15 years ago. And he looked at me and he goes, well, that's where the government's going to step in and bail us out. All right, I get it now. (laughs) And that's exactly what Obamacare was. If you look at the stock prices of where insurance company stock prices were, in February of 2009, when the first part of Obamacare kicked in, which was hidden in the stimulus bill, and you look at, at the stock price of insurance, health insurance companies now, they're up at least 600, 700%. Wow. So if Obamacare was such a horrible thing for the insurance companies, 
Why are they re reporting record profits, billions of dollars every quarter? Why are their stock prices going through the roof? Why are their CEOs making a hundred million a year? No. Obamacare hmm. was a bailout to the insurance industry. Just as the banking industry got bailed out in 2007 and 2008. Wow. So, so the key, the key, to make healthcare more available, more affordable, and more quality oriented, which H.W. Bush, Clinton, W., and Obama never would go near. The key is empowering people, taking, putting money back in the hands of people so they can be better consumers of healthcare. And the only type of plan that does that are health savings account combined with direct primary care, combined with selling insurance across state lines so insurance companies have to compete rather than collude. The 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 high risk pools, you know, high risk pools so that you know the one of the big boogeymen out there is pre existing conditions. Well, before Obamacare, there were thirty five states that had high risk pools for pre existing conditions. All you had to do was get 15 more states to go to do it. And, but no, instead they had to dismantle everything. And they, they come in with Obamacare that cost about three trillion dollars. The cost of 50 high risk pools for pre-existing conditions, one in each state, the total cost would be 44 billion. Hmm. Now you're not going to hear that from the insurance industry. Because the insurance industry was getting bailed out. They wrote Obamacare. It, 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 now so, it's making sense. So, 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 and, and what Obamacare did is rather than empower people, right, it empowered big government and big insurance companies. So essentially what it did for, for the American public, it created a big VA. Now, as a physician going through training, and working at, you know, my training was at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago, my internship and residency at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and actually I did my fellowship in Canada. So I got to see a national healthcare program in, in, in bird's eye view. I thought I was going up there to do a sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction fellowship, which I did, but I also got a huge education in healthcare policy because of the national healthcare system and trying to See, you know, see how people were adversely affected. And, and it, it took about 24 hours of working in Canada where I realized, hey, the way they're cutting costs is rationing care. You know, people would wow. take six months to come see us in our clinic and they'd be given two appointment times, 8 a.m. and 1 p.m. And they'd start lining up at six in the morning. So you start seeing your 8 a.m. every minute, 8 a.m. or 1 p.m. 8 a.m. you start seeing the patients, and at 11:30 when it was time for the secretaries, they say, "Okay, time to go to lunch." If anybody was left, they'd say, "Sorry, you got to reschedule." This is after they waited six months to see us. My first week I was there, there was a guy I was called to see in the emergency room. He had been injured at work. He tore a cartilage in his knee. His knee was locked. It was stuck. He couldn't move. Couldn't move his knee. Couldn't walk. 
I go to see him, I examine him, torn cartilage, you know, arthroscopically, we can take care of this in an hour. I go to the scheduler and go back to the clinic and say, hey, we have this nice fella, he got injured at work, uh, uh, let's get him in clinic as quick as we can. Now, this was in, this was in uh, January. And I said, when can we get him in clinic? She said, uh, first available, she goes, uh, that would be July 10th. <laughs> I go, what? She goes, uh, July 10th. I go, January 10th? No, July 10th. I said, that's like over six months. She goes, yeah, well, that's the first appointment we have. You can go tell them that. I go, well, no. I mean, I can tell you, in my in, in private practice here in the United States, you know, if you don't see somebody in 12 hours, you know, you're a horrible doctor. So <laughs> I go tell this guy, and he looks, I'm thinking he's going to yell at me and carry him. He looks at me, he goes, oh, thanks, doc. Okay, I will see you then. I'll go on crutches till then. Wow. I go, I said to him, I go, you're not mad? He goes, oh, no, that's the way healthcare is here in Canada. <laughs> so the guy could not work. He comes in the clinic six months later. His knee is still stuck, locked. He's on crutches. You say, okay, this is ridiculous. I go back to this. I go, okay, this guy's back. He really needs to go to surgery. we got to get him. I mean, this is an, less than an hour procedure, for goodness sake. She goes, yeah, okay, uh, here's the surgery day. Uh, January 5th. January 5th. That's another, like, six months. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go back and tell him. Oh, okay. Thanks, Doc. That's the way it is. This guy was off work for over a year when here in the States, he would have been back to work within a couple weeks. I'm blown away by this. I am absolutely astounded by this. Uh, Folks, our our guest is Dr. Dave Janda. He has a weekly radio show, Wham Talk 600, W-A-A-M Talk 1600, I'm sorry, and over Michigan Operation Freedom Live broadcast 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. His book, The Awakening of a Surgeon. Um, Boy, am I glad I just asked that question and stepped back um, to just... uh, (laughs) I, I don't even know, I, I, Joe. I uh. well, you know, everything that we just covered from the the uh, uh, prevention of of injuries to uh, the insurance industries uh, losing power, then regaining them under Obamacare. We uh, we we we've heard a lot of this before in, in different pieces on different shows. But one of the things I want to ask you about, Doctor, and I don't know how much information you have on this, Doctor Jerome Corsi did. A very in-depth report on the funding of Obamacare mm-hmm. via uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, and during that stimulus package, how much, uh, how much money was siphoned from uh, corporations, from the taxpayers, from the stock market to, to prop Obamacare and keep it funded uh, in those, you know, 2009 to 2014 uh, when it started to, to fall apart more so in the public. Well, Jerry Corsi's work was, in a word, brilliant. It was outstanding. And what Dr. Corsi identified was that there was a shortfall, but the insurance companies were doing just fine. So the question is, where did the money come from? And as you mentioned, Joe, it was siphoned from Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Corsi estimated, and there's been some other analysis, that about $300 billion was siphoned out of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae 
and shoved in the insurance company's pockets. And one of the things that a number of us had spoken to the Trump administration about is that, look, if if you really want to end Obamacare overnight, and it can be stopped overnight, it's just stop, stop, stop the 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 dividends being shoved into the insurance company's pockets through these these payments. And in fact, and in fact, uh, July eighth. Headline from Zero Hedge. Trump freezes billions in of Obamacare payments. Outraging who? <gasps> Insurers. I didn't hear that headline. Thanks for that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So anytime, in Dave Janda's world, anytime the insurance industry is upset, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. And, and really this, this really came about through Corsi's work. You see what happened was that New Mexico filed the lawsuit and, and, and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. All this money is, is getting shoved into insurance companies and this is a huge problem. And it turns out that a judge may, recently made a decision in a, in a federal court in New Mexico that, that it was a, a bad formula that was being utilized. And because it was a bad formula, the whole program needed to stop. And let me, here's a, here's a quote, okay, uh, from, uh, from one of the insurance companies. I think this guy was with Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, it says, predictably, advocates of the risk adjustment program, that's what it's called, and Obamacare in general were outraged. Risk, risk adjustment, risk adjustment, quote, has been long supported and embraced by both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, you want to know why? Because they're all getting lobbying money mm-hmm. from the insurance industry. Okay, I mean, just look at Paul. You you want to Paul Ryan and Ryan Care? What a goat rodeo that was! That essentially took Obamacare's name and put Trump Care on it, courtesy of Paul yeah. Ryan. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that was a sellout to the insurance industry. And all you have to do is look at Ryan's funding. It's a who's who in the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. If you look at his funding, and by the way, Paul Ryan's wife, my understanding. She's a former lobbyist for who? The insurance industry. Yeah, okay. Figure that. So risk adjustment, quote, has been long supported and embraced by both Republicans and Democrats, end quote, said Scott Sirota, president of Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. He goes on, quote, this action will significantly, this is their, this is the boogeyman, here we go. This action will significantly increase 2019 premiums for millions of individuals and small business owners and could result in far fewer health plan choices, end quote. Wow. That, that's just amazing. And, you know, it's like the, uh, one thing that I'm learning, uh, as we, I get older, especially about the insurance companies, it's like the, uh, American Medical Association. All everything that is done is not done to cure you of diseases. Uh, the pharmacies, the pharmaceutical industry, the doctors—they don't want to cure you. They want a lifelong patient. They want a lifelong uh, uh, customer, if you will, uh, of their of their drug. That's why their their drugs always, always mask the symptoms rather than uh, actually work on healing them. And that's ninety-five of the medicine, despite you know a few other examples here and there. And then also taking it to the, another extreme the war on alternative health and alternative health practitioners we've seen the government go after these people for offering actual 
alternative ways to treat these some of these chronic diseases and illnesses that have been more successful than what the medical association has been able to put forward but they are censored they are uh, you know their research and works thrown away they are hindered at every level because they don't want this getting out there or they don't want the public to know there's another option out there and it, it it's such a monopoly that it, and it's so entrenched as you said with the lobbying i mean I, lobbying i used to think you know it's a good idea to have people in there uh, you know, for different reasons and, and things you know, fall through the cracks and these people need to be there to promote them. But I don't think there's anything positive lobbying does anymore. It's, it's turned into a big Hillary Clinton pay-to-play scheme, it seems. That's, and That's exactly right, Joe. And, you know, I can, I can attest to what you're saying because of my work in, in, in prevention. I had, not a lot, but I did have some physicians come to me and go, Dave, what are you doing? You're, you're killing business. <laughs> you're killing business, Dave. You're preventing health care need. People aren't coming to the doc. They're not coming to the hospital. What are you doing? <laughs> well, and my response was, well, if you went into medicine to make money, a lot of money, you're in the wrong profession. Go run a savings and loan or something. <laughs> you know, this is about helping people, making a difference. And I can tell, and, and, and it got, when some of our research, we showed that certain products were actually causing injuries, sports products. Okay. As opposed to preventing, they were they were marketed as preventing injuries, but in fact they were actually leading to more injuries. And and we published our research, and I can tell you, um, we got tremendous blowback. The first thing they do is they say, um, oh, "We're going to sue you." <laughs> I go, "Sue me for what? Telling the truth?" I go, "We have the peer-reviewed published studies, scientific studies." You don't. You have marketing. Bring on the lawsuit. And when that didn't work, then they threatened physical violence. Oh. You watch where you go, Janda. Bad things are going to happen. You know, your research is going to cost us tens of millions of dollars. Guys like you don't last long. Well, I had ways to protect myself. And when that didn't work, and they couldn't get in my head on that, at one point, we had to get protection for my wife and kids. Oh. And the reason is because they started to be threatened. Oh. So, you know, many people have said to me, and that's why actually you mentioned the book, The Awakening of a Surgeon. That's why I wrote the book, The Awakening of a Surgeon. And people said, you know, Dave, uh, you put up with such huge heat for just doing the right thing. you you got to write a book about this. And that's what the book is about, about how people can become empowered and make the healthcare system work for them rather than against them and how to beat these special interests. But I also talk about the journey. And and even when you're trying to do the right thing, you get tremendous blowback and you have to try to find a way to 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 get to the other end of the journey, to, to make a difference for people. And many people, Doug and Joe, said to me, why do you do this? This is nuts, Dave. You don't get any money from the institute. You donate all your time. You do all this research that has this big, has these significant ramifications. Yet, the politicians in Washington don't listen to you because you're not bought and paid for. And you got all these goons threatening to do stuff to you and your family. Why do you do this? Well, let me tell you why I do it. It goes back to July 28, 1989. At the time, my wife and I had. Uh, a child, and she was uh, ten months old at the time, and she became very, very ill. And in fact, her bone marrow stopped functioning. 
And at the time, career-wise, I was doing research on prevention, but I was also doing research to develop operations after people were injured. And I was kind of at a crossroads in my career. And then Allison became ill, and her bone marrow stopped functioning, and she was hospitalized. And in her hospitalization, she started to get worse and worse, to the point where she lost consciousness. And my friends, who were doing everything they could to take care of her, came to me and said, Dave, we kind of running out of rope. We, um, we don't know if she'll make it. Oh, man. And at the time, the concern was either she had a, if she had cancer of her bone marrow because her bone marrow was just blown out or that she had a viral infection of her bone marrow that had suppressed it to a huge degree. And they felt she was a setup for a massive infection which could kill her. And, um, mm. After she lost consciousness, I did what, um, and nothing was working, I did what thousands and tens of thousands of parents do every year in hospitals and what those parents are doing for those little kids in Thailand right now. They're trapped in a cave. I uh, said a prayer. I uh, picked her up out of her crib, and uh, I held her, and I asked God to take my life and not hers. And then something happened that had never happened to me in my life before or since. As I said this prayer, um, I heard a voice. And the only other person in the room was my dad, and it wasn't my dad's voice. And the voice said, focus on prevention. Establish a center. And I opened my eyes and I said, did you say something to me? And he goes, no. But if you heard something, follow. I closed my eyes, I finished the prayer, and I just said, I will do everything you ask me to do. Just make her better. And I opened my eyes, and um, about two or three minutes later, she opened her eyes and she started to speak again. So many people say, you know, Dave, why do you do what you do? Why do you focus on prevention? Why, when government people don't listen to you, when when you get threatened for doing the right thing, you don't get paid anything from the Institute to do all this work, why do you do the radio show where you take on the deep state, you take on the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, you take on all these deep state players when you're presenting information about whether it's the inspector general's report or whether it's the Awan brothers or whether it's the drug cartels or MS-13 or illegal immigration or the guests you bring? Why do you, why do you do it? And the answer is, is July 29th. 1989. It goes back to all what happened in that room. Allison, our daughter, um, gradually improved. Praise God. And, and uh, yes, and and it's interesting. What happened to her bone marrow? She recovered, and it made her bone marrow even stronger, to the point where when she was in high school and college. She was an outstanding cross-country runner because her bone marrow 
produced the cells that made her oxygenate better. <laughs> and that little girl is now ended up not only graduating from college, but she went to medical school at University of Michigan where they saved her life, or where her life was saved, I should say. And now she's doing her fellowship in cardiac anesthesi- anesthesiology there. Wow. So. Go you know, Allison, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but, but the, the point is, is that we all face, and you, both Doug and Joe, you, you face adversity every day doing what you do and telling the truth and shedding the light of truth on the deep state, the scum. Sure. And it's very hard for you, although you make it look easy because you're pros, <laughs> it's very hard for you to do what you do because of the immense pressure you get to be more a part of the system as opposed to be people who are fighting for freedom. And people need to recognize that. That it's very hard to be independent. It's very hard not to be bought and paid for. And unfortunately, there are very few people, and you're included in this group, who are not bought and paid for, who are dedicated to empowering people by educating them and providing them the truth. And 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 people need to realize that the mainstream media is not your friend. <laughs> They're tentacle of the globalist syndicate. One very quick story, one of my first meetings in Washington when Reagan was president, we were at the domestic, talking about domestic policy issues. And that night, I went back to my hotel room and I was watching Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and whoever was on ABC. And they started to discuss in these news reports what we had discussed in the White House earlier in the day. But it was 180 degrees different. Okay? I mean, if, if, if we were talking white, they said it was all, it was black. I mean, it was, it was 180 degrees. So the next day I go back to the White House and I, before the meeting started again, I said, hey, um, we need to talk to the communications people because there was a huge misfire yesterday because I watched the network news on CBS, NBC, ABC, and they all said the same thing, and it was all completely 180 degrees different than what we discussed and what's really happening. <laughs> and they all, they all looked at me and started laughing. And they go, newbie, newbie. Newbie, they didn't get it wrong. They, they put out exactly what we told them to put out. And that's what I learned that the vast majority of information that's presented in the what's called the mainstream media that we call the lamestream fake media is pure propaganda. It's pure propaganda. Mm. It's even worse than that. Yeah. I mean, it's well, the, the, the propaganda on the TV and it going into, I mean, just everything that they, they promote on the, the news and the, what Hollywood has done, it's, it's evil. It's evil propaganda being done to intentionally manipulate and deceive not only on a, on a physical and a mental level, but most importantly on a spiritual level. And, and that is, you know, the, the battle and the people we are, are fighting against. But, uh, you know, what an amazing story and the personal testimony. By the way, if I can just jump in here, when you were discussing what you were saying, 
We've, we've got a number of people in the studio here, and you could have heard a pin drop, and very few times has that ever happened. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, and that that kind of personal testimony, and and because of that, the drive to uh, you know follow through with those promises and and uh, with what the the voice told you to do, and being so successful at it is uh, uh, a confirmation of that you're you know doing exactly what you're supposed to to do, and and it's uh, having a huge difference. And I I just want to thank you for for all your efforts. And I want to, I wanted, if we could take the, I had a few more questions on the, the insurance aspect of it, just to give people, uh, some insight that I've received emails that I don't know how to answer over the last six, eight months. The co-op insurance platforms where I see it in, in religious circles, uh, hear it on the radio, you know, uh, join part of our co-op. Everybody shares the, the price of everybody else's, uh, uh, medical bills. What what are your comments or thoughts on on these kind of programs? They, they actually the co-op and they have they folks have to look at at these co-ops and their track record. Okay, the track record is key. But many of these co-ops uh, provide actually a very valuable service, and the reason is is because they're basically based on price transparency, competition, and empowerment of the individual that holds the policy. And many of the co-ops are very cost-effective and do a great job. So my bag is health savings accounts. And some of the co-ops actually integrate the use of health savings accounts and the use of direct primary care where there's a direct relationship with a physician. It reestablishes the doctor-patient relationship. You know, one of the things Obamacare was about was the destruction of the doctor-patient relationship. And, and, and what, what these co-ops do is they reestablish doctor, the doctor-patient relationship. A team that looks at cost, that looks at care, that looks at, and, and, and this is the key to driving costs down in a humane manner, but also making healthcare uh, work for the person rather than work against them. And the same is true with health savings accounts. So in general, Joe, the co-ops, but, but the key is, that your listeners need to do due diligence on each one of these co-ops. Just because it has co-op does not necessarily mean that it's going to be a good thing. They need to look at the track record. And what I always tell people is if you're looking at an insurance product, try to go to an independent source. And, uh, and, and, and you know, on the internet, obviously, you can talk to the company. I, what, I, what I always tell people is when you talk to the company, say, um, I need I need some references. And then you call the competition, whether it's another co-op or whatever it might be, and say, I need some references. And when you call those references, you try to play them off against each other to see what they say about the other. And in this day and age of the Internet, the Internet is a, can be bad, but it can be a very powerful information tool. And let me tell you, if there's a problem with an insurance company or a particular co-op, you can get to it pretty quickly without having to do a deep dive. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, we only have about 10 minutes. I cannot believe how quickly this time has gone. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been more just 
consumed by by the content of what you're saying. I, yeah, we don't talk about these intricacies uh, in, in these no. uh, areas too often. Are, are, well, my, I just want to get this question in: Are we looking right, looking right now at the at the likelihood of a single single payer healthcare system? I mean, are are, are, are we is our goose cooked basically right now, or, or can we can we pull back out of this? Given all, everything you know. Well, I can tell you that the goal of Obamacare was to meld it into a single-payer system. That's not conspiracy theory. It's fact. Right. Yeah, they and, stated you know, that. One of the things people don't talk about, Doug and Joe, is the fact that, you know, remember when they were building the Obamacare website and it, and it, it was like billion million dollars. I remember? Yep. I mean, it was billion. It went like it was a two billion. It was like, what happened? Where did all this money go? No one knows where. Well, I truly believe what they were creating, they created two parallel websites and systems. They created the Obamacare site, and I believe Obamacare, the way it was written, it was written to fail. And they and they had this single-payer system all lined up and all ready to go. And that's why the cost of that website was so high initially, because they created two parallel systems. The Obamacare that was marketed to the public and the single-payer system to come in when it failed and imploded. So if Hillary Clinton would become president, I can assure you that we would be on a road to single-payer system. I believe, and I know folks are going to get upset with this, but I I truly believe this based on my analysis, and this is 30-plus years of doing this. I believe if Ryan Care would have passed as written as Brian wanted it. It would have renamed Obamacare Trump Care. It would have also imploded, and we would have been on the road to a single-payer system. I, 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 can, I can see that. Yeah. Where, where are we now with the, pro, uh, the, the process? Um, is it kind of in limbo at the moment? The, mm-hmm. the, is that where we're at? I would say it's in limbo. But here is where you are so important. Educating people about that there is an alternative. You know, there's an independent insurance, not with a big insurance company. Uh, David Powell, he's out of Kansas. He's written all this legislation for, for a number of states. And David Powell, he, he's been on my show several times. Uh, uh, he, he's fantastic. And David outlines the system where with the use of health savings accounts, direct primary care, all the things we've talked about today could be implemented within 24 hours. If Obamacare got shut down, boom, within 24 hours it's in because one of the boogeymen they put out there, the Pelosi and the Schumers, is, well, if Obamacare goes down, millions of people are going to be at risk. Oh, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. It's going to be awful. Hmm. No. No, no, no. It can be flipped overnight. Example. The state of Idaho recently took David Powell's programs. This worked in Kansas. They just did it in Idaho. Within 12 hours of that legislation passing from one insurance company program, all of a sudden it blossomed to nine. Competition ensued within 12 hours. Where where the state of Idaho said, you no longer have... Are, are shoved into Obamacare, you can actually choose between other programs. And and a co- one other thing, Obamacare, you know, they hold up the, oh, we have millions more people who have insurance. No. And just because you have insurance doesn't mean you get health care delivery. 
And a good example of that is Medicaid. Obamacare shoved many people into, millions of people into Medicaid. Medicare is for the elderly. Medicaid is for the poor and the indigent. Medicaid is a terrible way to deliver healthcare. It's expensive. The quality of care is terrible. In fact, this is the dirty little secret the government bureaucrats don't want you to know. Here it comes. There are four, four peer-reviewed published medical studies that show that people that have no insurance have better health outcomes and a better chance of survival than people that have Medicaid insurance. Why is that? Because Medicaid is a ration-based program. Of course. Ration-based. Ration-based. Yep. It's a ration-based. It's hard to get care, and by the time you get care, you're further along the disease process, and you're more vulnerable to a bad result or death. Like Bill Gates said, why keep this elderly woman alive for three months when you could hire ten teachers in place of that care? Well, it's and that, that goes back to uh, that goes back to one of the architects of Obamacare, Ezekiel Emanuel, who I believe is yeah. a whole. I mean, the fact that he has doctor in his name around his name just makes me want to vomit. This guy created a system called the Complete Live System, and basically what it is, it's it's a ration-based system based on age. So they determine in their in their complete lives model, which was published in the Lancet, a British medical journal, that the, the prime people in, for society are between the ages of 15 and 40. And if you're in that age group, well, you can get as much health care as is needed. But if you're less than 15 and if you're greater than 40, you're not a prime time player in society. So your resources in health care are going to be reduced. Wow. That's one of the prime architects of Obamacare. It's sick. Indeed it is. Folks, uh, our guest for the last hour, this part of the show, Dr. Dave Janda, davejanda.com. One thing I'll be doing is I'll be joining your website to uh, to access the archives. Of course, our guest has a weekly Sunday radio show, WAAM Talk 1600, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Operation Freedom. 2 to 5 Eastern. I now have a a new date yeah. every Sunday. Except um, when we do Patreon. <laughs> well, it's Eastern 2 to 5. So No, but you can get the archive and everything on his website. Right. You can become a, a, a premium member right. as well uh, in there. This is we're out of time. I didn't get, we didn't get a chance to ask about the IG report. Would, or would, the would you come back, though? Would, would you? Oh, I'd love to. It would be an honor. Awesome. Uh, We'd love to have you back. This was a great conversation. Uh, wow. So informative, even for us. I mean, usually we have guests on and we're talking about subjects that we know inside and out, but this was very eye-opening and it shed a lot of light on, uh, you know, the, the inner workings and, and deceit in these, uh, institutions that are, you know, looking after the care and healthcare and management of that healthcare, uh, for the better man of the American people. It's kind of a joke when I say it out loud, but Dr. Gabe, thank you so much. A hug for us too. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for having part of your leadership. God bless you, Dr. Dave Janda. God bless you so much. Wow. Peter uh, Berry Chowka is coming up next. I, I'm sorry I couldn't hear what the uh, doctor's last sentence was for no, some reason. No, I, I couldn't either. But, but we'll have him I'm back for sure. I'm just blown away by this. We'll be right back. Um, a couple of things before we get to our next guest. Uh, again, our thanks go out to the Patreon members. And if you're just joining us... Um, 
Well, we're not going to redo the email, woe is us, but boy, I'll tell you something. We have missed a lot of emails, and it's because we're not getting them. And the emails we're sending out, I guess it's a 50-50 coin toss. Look, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this is uh, part of some concern, you know, conservative censorship. The other thing, right now, as we speak, got it up on my screen. There it is. Okay, we are uh, we are getting ready to hear. Yeah, we're not going to play anything because last time we well, played a, no. a C-SPAN clip, CNN uh, ruined our YouTube account for for two months on a bogus copyright claim that was resolved in ten days that YouTube never didn't fix for you know eight weeks. So we're not no, even going to no, attempt no. to play even a, a, a put a picture up from this nope. press conference that is nope. ongoing right now, but. Uh, he was just announced in. Everybody is seated in the East Room of the White House. Now, there is talk that Amy uh, Bartlett is at home, in her home in Amy Wisconsin. Amy Coney Barrett. There is a uh, Barrett. Okay. There is also talk that uh, another one. It, it seems to be down to it, Kavanaugh it, it, and the uh, runner-up last the time. Under, here's under, the deal. Uh, another, another 15 minutes. We'll know. Yeah. So, why speculate? Well, I'm just saying, what news media are reporting that, you know, out of the four main ones that were uh, uh, said, you know, they're going to be picking out of this four. Two are reported to be at their residence, their own private residence at home, meaning they're not going to be part of this announcement. But who's to say they have to be at the White House for the announcement? But the president is coming on well, to speak right speaking, now, there's, yeah. and Peter Barry Chalka okay. is coming on. So let's be, be, Peter, bring Peter yeah, wait, on. Wait, 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 wait. Before we bring Peter on, we need to say, I need to say something here. We, we've got a very good friend of the show, David M. up yeah. in Massachusetts. Yep. And, and talked to him several times. Okay, David, we received your re- request for prayer in our family here at the Hagman Report. We're praying for you, for your family, during the tough challenges you're facing. Can I ask our, our family of listeners to, to please pray for David M. Yeah. up in Massachusetts? Uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but... No, he needs our prayers. He's His family going, needs our prayers. Family situations, a number of them over the last few years that have not turned out well. Um, and He's a good friend of prayer the show. is is definitely needed. Yes, and prayer works. And as Peter Berichaka knows and has attested, uh, prayer is is so powerful. And again, we're awaiting on the um, uh, the announcement of the Supreme Court justice. But as we said. Protests are already planned for Trump's uh, against Donald Trump's nominee, and it's 12 cities across the United States right now. And the the, the group behind it is, of course, refuse fascism. Interesting, uh, interesting. Story. Not Antifa, or by any means necessary, or the resistance, or yeah. well, it's that's just joking. You, you know, it, it's, it's actually it's actually under the umbrella of OFA, and that's uh, Organizing for Action, Obama. All right, let's bring Peter on. Is he on? Yep. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, Peter. Sorry for taking your time. We've had a great few interviews with Peter. We had one on the uh, a, on Thursday. Peter's a machine, um, man. Last week, because we took Monday off, he was on The Daily Show also, and that was a great interview, and then we got him here Monday. So uh, You're working him too hard. <laughs> we are. We're using him a lot. But our listeners love him, so we'll continue well, to do it. I enjoyed all of those opportunities, including and especially The Daily Show. And... Uh, no rest on the weekend, though. Uh, I, I'll just mention this in passing briefly with no major details, but I was contacted by an editor of a major publication, and I mean much more major than uh, the one I've been writing for, 
primarily in the last 13 months. And uh, the way this works is that uh, an author who's been considered to be published in a professional publication like this is asked to submit an article. So that's what I've been working on all weekend and will for the next few days. And uh, I don't want to jump the gun because uh, until an article is actually in print, you can't point to it and say, aha, it's it's there, it's in print or it's online. So we'll see. And if it doesn't work out, I won't mention it again, but hopefully I'll have some good news to report uh, when we get together next week at this time. But I've been doing a lot of research on the very topic that I want to focus on tonight. And before I get to that, uh, I want to acknowledge the assistance of my, one of my Twitter friends, Ruth, in Los Angeles, who's been very helpful in giving me lots of information uh, that she gets as a really good researcher. And last week I was, uh, early in the week, we were uh, venting on Twitter and direct messages back and forth because like a lot of my friends online, on email and on Twitter, you get to the point at the end of the day where you just are pulling your hair out saying, how much more of this can we stand before our heads explode? So uh, after an evening of kvetching and venting, uh, she suggested that I title my next uh, appearance here, Peter Barry Chalka Unplugged. So if that's the title, the subtitle will be Socialism and Communism Are Here Now. And that's what I'll be getting into tonight. But first, to thank everyone again who has visited my Twitter, and the address is on the small monitor behind me, at P. Chalka. And uh, you don't have to be a member of Twitter to go to my or anybody else's Twitter. I use mine as pretty much a table of contents for my articles and my appearance uh, links to these podcasts and all. And I just crossed the 3,700 mark of followers. It's, it's really a slow war of attrition now that we're all being messed with by the algorithms and the shadow banning or whatever's going on. And it's really slowed down and plateaued. So uh, anyone who's on Twitter who makes it to my Twitter account and would consider following me, I would really appreciate it. And I ask for that, not for any uh, monetary benefit. I'm not making a dime from any of this, but uh, what I am getting, what I am looking for, as we all are, is an expansion of our audience because the work we're doing is very unique in many ways and very important at this time. And uh, the only way it gets out is to have people listening, watching, and reading. And, and speaking of watching, I also have to thank everyone who has gone to my uh, edited standalone videos on YouTube. Uh, fortunately, in, in most cases, after we conclude this broadcast, I, I think it's Jackie who edits them down to the... Uh, the substance of my comments, about 55 minutes. And then, Joe, I think you upload them to YouTube. And the one that got uploaded after my June 25th appearance has gotten over 17,000 views, which is five times more than my previous record. And I think there there were about 30 or 40 of them you online. See, you should see the back-end numbers of that, Peter. The back-end numbers. Um, the, well... Uh, I'll just say this: uh, you can you can probably multiply that by ten. If you right, want. these are the official stats that yep. we see. And right. Who knows what the reality is? But you know, I don't mention it to brag or to call attention to myself because it's really a validation of the audience. Uh, what we are 
reporting and, and saying in our, our free climate here of expression is finding an audience. And it feels like we've, we've reached a new level where all of a sudden it's, it's really turbocharged. So I want to thank everyone who's uh, watching, listening, reading, and commenting as well, including to my email address, which I set up uh, uh, two or three weeks ago now, two weeks ago now, I guess. Uh, and that's Peter, A-T-H-R, symbol at Outlook.com. Peter at H-R at Outlook.com. And I welcome anyone to email me there, send me pictures of their animals, their cats, dogs, uh, geese, possums. I've gotten a lot of different animals, and I try to use one every week in tweeting the link to this Monday night broadcast. So thanks to everybody. And uh, if I'm not able to personally respond to emails in the next week, it's because I'm uh, working virtually every waking moment to try to advance these articles and find a larger audience, as well as prepare for next Monday's Hagman Report. We're going to pray uh, for you. Uh, and I'm going to ask the audience to pray for, for Peter, too, uh, for your endeavor, because it sounds like a great endeavor, your writing endeavor. So we're excited. Well, I hope it. it I hope it pans out. Thank you, and I, I appreciate the prayers. This is at the point where I get choked up when I think of the people who write to me and say they're praying for me. Well, you know, it's. it's yeah. I, I can't. You know, I I I can't think of a finer thing to read from someone you don't know. It's just amazing. But, and I think the cats are. The last report I heard was that the cats are with us on the. Uh, yes, there they are on the daybed. That's, um, I can't even tell them apart from this, this distance, but that's Lulu <laughs> and Biggie. And it's Biggie, not, uh, somebody got the name wrong at the YouTube comments, B-I-G-G-I-E. And by the way, one or two people were objecting in the YouTube comments to, uh, the presence of the cats or any time taken up to, uh, mention the cats. And again, I say tough because, uh, people who don't care for God's creatures are animal companions. Uh, I think the problem is them and not with me or the cats. But moving right along, just to set the stage, we talked before about how we had a cultural revolution start in this country in the 1960s, at the same time, by the way, that it was underway in the People's Republic of China, Red China, where it, it did some real dirty work there and took millions of lives and pretty much completely instituted the communist revolution there, which had started in 1949, but it was turbocharged in the late 60s. So there was the attempt here with the violent, isolated cultural revolution of the late 60s, mainly 1967 through about 1969 or 70, and then it kind of burned itself out. But the seeds were planted, uh, and, and the seeds, I mean, of socialism and Marxism, because that's what was behind the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s in the United States. Students for a Democratic Society, that was a Marxist-inspired group. Uh, the Weather Underground, a hardcore Marxist-Communist group, etc., etc. Uh, now, the um, although the seeds were planted, they kind of went underground in the 70s and 80s, and the characters who were behind this revolution in the 60s which didn't succeed, obviously, because America then was different than it is now. There was still, the country was still made up primarily of native-born uh, European-origin Americans. 
and African Americans were included in that too because they were also mostly patriotic Americans at that time. Well, we know we have a very different demographic picture now, a very different population, possibly as many as 30 million illegal immigrants according to the lieutenant governor of the state of Texas who happened on that figure recently. So in the 70s and 80s, the Cultural Revolution wormed its way in to the fabric of this country slowly but inexorably into the popular culture, academia, especially academia, public education, Hollywood, and we saw this blossom in 1992 with the election of the Clintons to the presidency, baby boomers who had no morals and who had very questionable uh, pro-communist backgrounds, especially Hillary Rodham Clinton, whose uh, hero was Saul Alinsky, the Marxist community organizer who died in the early 1970s and who she wrote her uh, college thesis on. Uh, now, recently we've seen, I think we've crossed the Rubicon here, and we've seen this really go forward. And that's one of the favorite words of the left. You know, Chairman Mao uh, titled his uh, cultural revolution that's in Red China, The Great Leap Forward. For a while there, a few years ago, MSNBC, the super left-wing cable news channel, their slogan was forward, and that's right out of the playbook of communism. So, um, you know, here we are, Jay. Oh, by the way, I want to mention an, oh, affirmative action was another way this really took off. The whole guilt trip of uh, American citizens and pushing forward people who really had no right to be pushed forward, and that held other people back. By the way, Jesse Lee Patterson, who was a guest on this program last week, as I recall. Peterson, as yeah. A, uh, Peterson, what did I say? Patterson. Oh, I'm sorry, Jesse Lee Peterson. Uh, has an excellent column in WorldNet Daily uh, posted yesterday titled Time to Bury Affirmative Action. Well worth reading, as is the podcast that is a standalone podcast at YouTube under the Hagman Report of his appearance. So uh, my perspective now, and I will report on this right now, is in 2018, after decades of this quiet, uh, th these rats kind of eating their way in, these socialist communist rats eating their way into the fabric of this country, uh, it is now taken firm hold. And as we've discussed before, we could be as a result on the verge of a real intense Civil War version 2.0. And um, by the way, the terms socialism and communism, they're really one and the same thing. I mean, socialism is a soft form of communism. Someone said once that socialism is communism in the period before they put a gun to your head to enforce it. But eventually socialism is going to turn to a complete control grid, which is in effect a fascist form of government, Marxism, communism. And there are so many uh, aspects of this which are are pushing this forward now that it's really, really frightening. And this is what uh, I've been working on in the in the past uh, couple of days specifically. But it also goes back to uh, about two weeks ago when I wrote three articles on what was happening in Portland, Oregon. And this is an, a really important part of the story. Uh, on June 17th in Portland, Oregon, uh, a handful of 
of uh, street people, basically leftists, who wanted to have a candlelight vigil at the ICE headquarters there, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the bogeyman in the current uh, uh, meme, PSYOP meme of separation of families, separation of migrants. This tiny demonstration when these, I think five or six people decided to spend the night there to camp out outside of the ICE headquarters, within two days it had mushroomed into several hundred people and they shut the ICE headquarters down for the next two weeks. And interestingly, this uh, Occupy Portland, I'm sorry, Occupy ICE Portland, as it's called, movement, overnight spread to dozens of other cities around the country and also inspired a huge demonstration uh, two weekends ago, which took place in 600 cities. And they're also planning on another... uh, hardcore direct action demonstration a week from tomorrow. So look out for that happening. Now, as I reported previously, Occupy ICE Portland favors no ICE, shut down immigration custom enforcement, which not only enforces illegal immigration or illegal aliens, uh, well, 75% of the ones they arrest have warrants out for them because they're hardcore criminals. Uh, they're not, you know, busting mothers and breaking up families, no. But they also uh, investigate and enforce laws against drug importation into this country and child trafficking. They don't only do immigration enforcement, but the left and the Occupy movement want to shut them down totally. These Occupy groups also believe in no borders, absolutely open borders, no prisons, They want to empty the prisons in the United States of the 2.7 million people incarcerated and let them out because the only reason they're there, according to these fanatics, is because of racism. Uh, And, of course, they want Donald Trump impeached. So this originated in the People's Republic of Portland, but now it has gone nationwide. Uh, When you look at the Twitter accounts, the Facebook accounts, or the web pages of these groups, all of which went online simultaneously and immediately. They call each other comrade. They refer to their occupation encampments as communes. These are basically communist cells that have taken root in the inner cities, the central cities of this country. And a lot of anarchists are thrown into as well uh, into the mix uh, because currently it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, even though anarchists uh, violently believe that there should be no government, which is, seems to be counter to socialism and communism, but at the moment they are cooperating. So here's what some news I will break on here right now, which is hopefully going to be in this article of mine that I've, I've mentioned that with some good luck will be published. And uh, the, a pro-Occupy website reported this several days ago about what's going on at the Philadelphia Occupy ICE. And I haven't seen this reported anyplace else. Now, this is a direct quote of what these people are advocating, Uh, although this is a a left-wing account of it. So I'm quoting a left-wing journal online. All over the United States, groups of socialists, anarchists, communists, and other leftists are camping outside ICE offices to prevent ICE agents and their detainees from entering and exiting the buildings. The action by Occupy Philadelphia in this case, was organized by a coalition of local activists and organizers, including 
Philadelphia Socialists, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Workers' World Party, Democratic Socialists of America, the Liberation Project, Socialist Alternative, Montgomery County Socialists, International Marxist Tendency, and Power Interfaith. Now, the Occupy groups in other cities around the country, this was Philadelphia, but others, boast support from a similar assortment of socialist, communist, and Marxist groups. For example, there's a a group in New York City called Red Bloom, which is, quote, a collective of communists, end quote. They strongly endorse Occupy New York City. The Revolutionary Communist Party USA, whose slogan is, we are building a movement for revolution, is another full-throated endorsement of these Occupy groups. Antifa, we've heard about them. They're an amorphous, uh, mysterious kind of leadership, uh, crypto-violent group. They are also backing Occupy USA, and they're very instrumental in this plan for the National Day of Action that I mentioned is coming up next Tuesday. Uh, oh, interestingly, one of the anarchist groups that's a part of this um, was actually critiquing some of what's going on because the socialists and commies are running these occupies. But one anarchist group at their website posted a mild critique, and it said, quote, when it comes down to it, the vast majority of us here have no idea how to coexist in a commune, end quote. And this was signed... Your local mindless anarchists hell-bent on nothing but destruction. This, by the way, was at the end of a long page describing Occupy Ice Portland and why it needs to go forward. These are some of the people who are behind this. Now, also behind it, as I mentioned, is... Oh, no, I didn't mention this yet. Here's another scoop. There is a growing movement to criminalize ICE employees. Uh... The credit here goes by way of our friend Kevin in New Hampshire, who called this to my attention. There's a talk show host in Boston named Jeffrey Cooner at WRKO AM 680, a a fabulous talk radio station. Absolutely. I got to just jump in here and say, Kevin, Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for the email as well. Uh, And and Peter, I don't mean to take time away. I I just want to announce that Brett Kavanaugh has. Is the uh, is the uh, was nominated for the uh, Supreme Court uh, seat? I didn't mean to jump in and no, change topics. Uh, no, no. Breaking news is always warranted. So. In fact, just as just as a uh, a footnote or coda to that, I of course was trying to keep up with some of that today. I had one ear on that, one eye on it online, and read the bios of the four uh, leading candidates. And you know, uh, hopefully, we're going to get. A real rock rib conservative in there. Conservative in there. Any of them would have been okay. But my concern now is that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the Democrats have their ducks in a row. They're going to go at this nominee fast and furious and with an unremitting attack. And this is going to consume the body politic for the next three, four, five months, however long it takes. As will you know, playing playing for. Uh, for lead story with whatever happens with the Mueller investigation yep. and the lead up to the November election. So, you know, we're going to be hearing so much about this and 
although it's important, of course, I don't think we should get distracted by the uh, this this fighting that's going to be going on because uh, whatever will be, we'll we'll see. I did happen to see today. Uh, and you run Schumer, too. Chuck Schumer spoke from the Senate floor with his. Uh, broadside attack <laughs> on the nominee who hadn't even been named yet of course and then uh, a bit later Mitch McConnell took the floor and I have to say Mitch did a really good job at exposing the Democrat plan which he uh, mentioned and showed with evidence has gone back four decades to destroy the reputation of any nominee any Supreme Court nominee that the Republican president puts forward no matter who he or she is. They are fodder for the Democrat socialist communist attack machine. So that's what we're going to see there. And, uh, you know, hopefully this person will, will make it. But, um, okay, I was mentioning. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and thank you, Peter. And, yeah. and by the way, you know, it, it, as you pointed out, and folks, Peter Barry Chalka is our guest at Pete Chalka on Twitter. And it's amazing because the protests are already planned for this, uh, uh, planned before the nomination announcement, so, which which segues and connects into what you're talking about in a larger sense, um, with the Occupy ICE in Portland, Occupy ICE, New York or Philadelphia, I believe it was, and, and just your coverage, which folks follow Peter on Twitter at Pichaka. That's the most expedient way to get to his articles, multiple articles, please, um, because he he's got. You know, I, look, I don't, I don't have to sell you on him. He, he, he's got the, his finger on the pulse of what's really going on. So go ahead, sir, and continue Thank you, without interruption. Thank you. And it gets better. There, I'm not finished yet because this actually has uh, an icing on the cake before we're through. So um, Jeffrey Cooner. Jeffrey Cooner is a 48-year-old uh, Canadian by birth, and uh, he wrote for the Washington Times. He's lived in the United States uh, for many years now. He's probably a citizen. I don't know for sure. But uh, he wrote for the Washington Times. And I first heard of him when he would substitute in uh, the latter part of the first decade of this century for Michael Savage. And he was one of the few guest hosts you would hear from a major talk show star host who did as good a better or better job than the host that he was substituting for. And in 2012, he got a full-time gig at WRKO in Boston, a, a station that is close to my heart. I was listening to it the day it went on the air in September of 1981 when I was within listening range of it. And I was actually a guest on WRKO several times, once with David Brudnoy, who is a classic figure now deceased, and also Jerry Williams in 1997 when I did a show with... Uh, Bob Guccione Sr. on the politics of cancer on the Jerry Williams show. Unfortunately, it was by phone, so I never got to meet Jerry, who was one of my heroes, and he's also deceased now. But I, I, I love that station and uh, what it represents in the People's Republic of Boston and Cambridge. But uh, Kevin in New Hampshire sent me a link to uh, one of Cooner's podcasts from last week with a specific note of the time to plug into it. And for that seven or eight minutes... Kuhner did such an exceptional job with taking apart Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the poster child now for socialism and communism in the United States, having won the primary election campaign in her New York City district uh, 13 days ago. 
and she's now the future of the Democratic Party, according to DNC Chairman Tom Perez. So that's how important they consider her and what she represents. So Cooner found a clip, an audio clip of uh, Ocasio-Cortez being interviewed by a left-wing media enterprise in which she basically said, um, now I'll quote Cooner, according to Cooner, Ocasio-Cortez said, ICE is committing war crimes, crimes against humanity. And that is, in fact, what she said. I listened to it myself. I'm just paraphrasing it here. Now, this is part, this is like the stalking horse from the poster girl for socialism, the stalking horse to opening the door to saying that ICE and other federal employees who are just doing their job enforcing the law have committed war crimes which should lead to their criminal prosecution possibly at the Hague in the world court and as crazy as that that might sound this kind of charge is now gaining momentum around the country because as I'm researching this article on Occupy uh, let's see I come across let me see if I can find this reference now I try to use just bullet points or uh, summations, but there's so many quotes here that I want to get correctly. So uh, let me see if I can find this one because it's it follows up exactly with what uh, our friend uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez uh, just said. Um, let's see. Yes, a prominent... Okay, so I'm researching the Occupy... Uh, ICE USA this is nationwide now a prominent and by the way Occupy ICE is also supported by Democrat social Democratic Socialists of America this is uh, the largest socialist group in the country now they brag that they've just passed the 40,000 mark in members but they got 4,000 new members in one week after Ocasio-Cortez who's a member in good standing and proud of it after her election and it really brought new publicity to this group so one of their members here, uh, a prominent Democrat Socialist of America member and supporter of Occupy ICE, and I won't mention his name, he helped to push this demand for criminalizing ICE even further when he tweeted what another socialist had said. And this other socialist who originally tweeted this is some kind of young hero. He's like in his teens. And he said, he tweeted, and I quote, Let's make abolish ICE the centrist position and prosecute ICE the leftist position, end quote. Now, by centrist position, of course, he means centrist, radical left, and by the leftist position, prosecute ICE far left. But we see that the whole movement, ideological movement in this country, has moved to the left, especially in the eight years under Barack Hussein Obama, and if you believe the polls now, this is catching fire. A majority of Americans supposedly now support Obamacare. There was a uh, a large article at uh, NBC, I believe it was NBC.com or NBC News today. Uh, let me see if I can find a reference to this, but I'm not finding it in my pages of notes. But uh, some 29-year-old socialist who's been elected to some local office in the city of Chicago, wrote a commentary which NBC published in which he says, uh, don't write off the Midwest and Middle America as a, uh, a, a 
a uh, a place where socialism will succeed now. And it, he cited a lot of statistics, a lot of findings, and a lot of spin to show that socialism could be the ticket this year. So people on the right who say, hey, bring them on, bring these socialists on, bring Ocasio-Cortez on, and when America gets a sense of what they really believe in, which is un-American, of course, they will say no to it. And I say, don't be so sure of yourself there, because Bernie Sanders started with 2% uh, approval rating in uh, 2015 when he started his campaign, and he ended it by uh, almost beating Hillary Clinton for the nomination, and I think he would have triumphed if not for the fact that the DNC had rigged that election. So we have some uh, some heavy-duty research and analysis, critique, and uh, information sharing to go here before we uh, uh, think that we're set and that uh, you know we're going to turn it around this November. And I'll pause here while I try to find some things in my notes. So if you have any questions or comments, please. Well, you know, Peter, you know, I know we didn't want to get bogged down in the details of the Supreme Court nominees and, uh, you know, the Kavanaugh um, uh, being announced, mm -hmm. uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I just didn't know, you know, there's a lot of reporting out there about him saying, him being quoted as saying he'd uphold Roe v. Wade his involvement in the uh, laying out the quote-unquote blueprint for the John Roberts decision on the Obamacare uh, tax mandate decision. There's some concerns about him, and I just didn't know if you had any inside information as the, or initial opinions on this guy yeah, and so, how far sorry conservative. About the, yeah, right, sorry about well, the change in there. No, no problem. One, one of my sources uh, shared with me there, there, there's information going on on the Internet uh, Twitter mainly, which I haven't had a chance to really delve into, but it, it looked intriguing and worth further research that uh, this nominee in particular had some role or something to do with the cover-up of the Vince Foster uh, death or murder uh, in 1993. Now, as I said, I haven't had a chance to, to uh, track that one down or chase that one down, but it came from a very usually reliable source, so I don't know. There were, I also heard that uh, he was involved in uh, in prepping uh, or helping to prep uh, Chief Justice Roberts when he wrote the opinion basically uh, allowing Obamacare to go forward, which took everybody by surprise a few years back when that made it to the Supreme Court. And it left us all scratching our heads. How could a, a conservative Chief Justice support Obamacare? Which is clearly unconstitutional. So you know, uh, we shall see. I mean, exactly. You know, we we shall see. And the only thing I've got to say about this, it's a damn good thing Hillary Clinton wasn't the one making that pick today. So that's right. All. You know, this this opens the door on. I, I wanted to. I, I had this on my list of possible things to comment on, and and this is original research and analysis too, which I think makes use of my long history of not only paying attention to current events since I was in third grade, but also working uh, in, in the area of news and activism and information my entire adult life. But uh, Schumer, in his, Senator Schumer, in his attack on the Senate floor this afternoon before the nominee was even named, it was like 
the abortion mantra. All he could say was uh, Trump's nominee is clearly going to deprive women of health care, deprive them of their right to choose, and that's all he kept repeating. And I, I heard this as if, of course, this is what the Democratic Party, this, this is all they've got to push now is abortion, abortion, abortion. And I mean, if you take a step back from that, it's absolutely mind-boggling and sickening on the face of it. But this is how far we have fallen that it, it doesn't even impress uh, at least half of the population. They are fine with it. But what I wanted to comment on in this context is the following, and I think it's very original and interesting uh, research or experience on my part. I've mentioned on previous shows how I got my real start in journalism uh, when I went to school in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s, early 70s. I had a Metropolitan Police press pass, which allowed me to cover events that were happening uh, on the national level in Washington, D.C. And in 1972, in particular, that was uh, an amazing year of the presidential election, both the primaries and the general election. And I had a front row seat, myself and several of my colleagues who were fellow students. We would grab our portable cassette recorder, our press pass, and I would take cameras along. We would go to press conferences, speeches. Uh, I went to several White House press conferences, all by the leading candidates. And in fact, I refreshed my memory today of, um, of course, the real contest was in the Democratic primary because Nixon was running for re-election, and he was pretty assured of getting the nomination. There was no real opposition to him. So the primaries came down to the Democrats, and it was a large field that year because it was an open uh, primary for the Democrats. And it also was the first one involving actual primary voting in many states. Prior to 1972, it had been these smoke-filled rooms with the political bosses who tended to anoint candidates in most states, but there were more actual voting primaries in 72. So it was really a hard-fought campaign. And among the candidates who I personally covered, reported on, went to their press conferences or speeches, asked a question sometimes one-on-one, were, of course, Senator George McGovern, who got the nomination, Senator Hubert Humphrey, who lost the presidential race in 68. He was running again in 72, and he was an SOB, by the way. Alabama Governor George Wallace, who actually came in second that year running as a Democrat in the primaries. And I interviewed him once. I just want to pause for a moment on this. And whatever you think of George Wallace, um, in 1972, my colleague, the late Scott Spiegel, and I asked Wallace when we ran into him at a Kennedy Center event where his daughter was competing in the Cherry Blossom uh, beauty pageant. And, and three weeks later, he would be shot and uh, paralyzed. By the way, I had a, an appointment or a, a reservation that day to be on his press bus to follow him to Maryland, and I overslept, so I didn't make it on that. I think it was May 15, 1972, the day he got shot. Uh, but uh, three well, weeks before... You, you've got three, a colorful history, by the way. I, I'm probably It's probably lucky I didn't, because a number of other people got shot that yeah. day along with him. But... Um, so three weeks before we asked him, uh, you know, uh, we got to ask him a few questions on tape, and I, I found the tape of this recently, and we asked him, Governor, what do you think about uh, the move to have pot legalized? Now, imagine we're three kind of young punks 
in Washington, D.C., you know, young journalists strutting our stuff, and we think, oh, we're going to see what, if we can, what, what kind of answer we're going to get out of Governor George C. Wallace, you know, the bete noir of politicians in the United States at that point. And he was very cordial, very professional, very calm, and he said, and I'll never forget this, and I, I listened to the tapers, and he goes, we got enough drunk drivers on the road now without legalizing something else. That's my best imitation. Of that was good. That Wallace. was good. But now, when you think of a sound bite, to this day, can you come up with a better sound bite of why pot shouldn't be legalized for casual use? We've got enough drunk drivers on the road now without legalizing something else. And he said it in a very positive spirit, and we were kind of taken aback. I don't know what we expected, but all these years later, what is this, 46 years later, I listened to that tape and I think, you know, this was no dummy. Anyway, okay, to continue the parade, I also touched base with uh, Senator Ed Muskie. He ran for vice president in 68. He was the front runner in 72. I sat right in front of him, three feet away, on the day in April of 72 when he withdrew from the race, having been badly beaten by George McGovern and others on a nationally televised speech. And I, my microphone, which was right in front of him, appeared on all the broadcasts that night. I watched the news and pointed to my friend and said, there's my microphone. Uh, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, he was the only kind of conservative in the race other than Governor George Wallace. Representative Shirley Chisholm of New York, uh, the first black woman to mount a serious campaign for president. She was very far on the left, but you had to give her credit for stepping out. And Of course, being far on the left then would mean uh, you're a right-wing Democrat now, if any of them still exist. And there were a few others. I won't go the, through the laundry list. Oh, and uh, well, last but not least in this list, uh, New York Mayor John Lindsay. Uh, my colleagues and I happened to be in Madison, Wisconsin, the first week of January, in 1972, covering a Georgetown basketball game play-by-play, when uh, John Lindsay was declaring for president there because the Wisconsin primary was going to be the first and most important one. So we went over to his announcement and questioned him, took a lot of pictures, but he flamed out really quickly. He had been a Republican and changed to a Democrat the year so he could run for president. The reason I mention all these names is... uh, About five years ago, I discovered a trove of my original audio tape recordings from 1972, most of them on cassette tapes, which I had not listened to since 1972 or 73. And so I started listening to them, and it has all these candidates' voices on there, recorded in real time during the campaign at press conferences. Some of them were interviews I did, uh, speeches. And the amazing thing that jumped out at me was, in 1972, throughout that year and throughout that campaign, the issue of abortion was raised from time to time by the journalists following these candidates. It wasn't a big issue because it wasn't a big issue for America. And at that point, I did some research again today, at that point, uh, of course, Roe v. Wade was the following January 22nd or 23rd, 1973, by the Supreme Court in the 72 decision which basically made law and claimed that there uh, there was a constitutional right under privacy that abortion should be guaranteed right for women nationwide. Up until that point, 20 states allowed some form of abortion 
only four of them kind of outright. You know, you put down your money and you could get an abortion up to a certain length of time. It wasn't, I don't think, beyond 12 weeks. So it was restricted, but it was moving forward in the liberal states. And probably organically, that should have, that, that should have been how it was allowed to proceed. And the Supreme Court upended that uh, a little more than six months later after this period I'm talking about. But when the journalists would ask these Democrat candidates, you know, what's your position on abortion? Every single one of them, from the far left of the group to the center left, were kind of afraid to go on the record and say, oh, I, I support abortion. They were all hemming and hawing, saying, well, you know, we really don't uh, support abortion. No, you know, they, because... Because a, a, a lifetime's worth, a, a history's worth of experience said that this is murder of an unborn child. And even the Democrats in 1972, the leading national Democrat candidates from the very far left were not willing to go out there and say in black and white that they endorsed abortion, a woman's right to choose. In fact, a woman's right to choose hadn't been dreamed up yet as a meme or a slogan. So that really (laughs) blew my mind when I realized that, listening to these tapes, that overnight the United States Supreme Court, a liberal court then, made legislation, and right away, of course, all the Democrats jumped on the bandwagon, and they've been riding that issue ever since, 46 years, and now they're riding that issue as far as they can take it, and they're going to try to use it to destroy this nominee. But just like they remade themselves from the party of the Klan and segregation to the party that supports people of color, they remade themselves from a party that was common sense about abortion to uh, whatever, however you want to describe them now. And I don't even know how to describe these, these people. And you're right. They're sick. Peter, and we talked about this uh Last week, Prager University's YouTube video, it's up on Hagman Reports still, the, the, the inconvenient history of the Democratic Party, and it goes through the uh, long list of, of Democratic policies that continued slavery, started the KKK, opposed uh, civil rights laws, imprisoned you know, Martin Luther King, the Republicans being the only ones you know, attempting to, to free uh, slaves to advance civil rights, and somehow they've been able to to twist it around, just like Planned Parenthood, they they say that you know they're for the children and for women's reproductive health rights. But their founder, Margaret Sanger, was the biggest eugenics of African Americans. That was her stated goal. Yet Planned Parenthood is supported by African Americans, uh, uh, a majority of African Americans, which makes no sense to me. And for it, it was never an issue. Abortion was not an issue, at least not in America until they made it an issue, until they said, we want the right to kill the babies in our wombs, and that needs to be our right. So somehow it made its way to the Supreme Court, and the judges uh, created a new constitutional right, uh, which they didn't. It's all fiat, but that's where our laws are today, and it's just such a disgrace. And I was talking uh, last week about this, reading Old Testament uh, from Jeremiah to Ezekiel, and the numerous times that God, through the prophets, warned of the abominations of Israel, and those abominations were killing the children in the womb and, and uh, sacrificing the children to the fire of Moloch. And it's the same, you know, we're doing the same, committing the same sins as a nation that Israel did that led to its destruction and captivity over and over again. And it's not going to end well for us. Right. Uh, I wanted to just mention as well where this Occupy 
Eisning and their insane Marxist, leftist, anarchist demands uh, are going and, and being swept by, up by, and that is the Democratic Party. Many of the leaders of the National Democrat Party are now almost fully embracing the uh, plans and the proposals of this radical communist Occupy ICE USA movement. That is no borders, no prisons, decriminalizing many crimes so that presumably people of color will not be swept up and held accountable, and maybe even criminalizing what ICE employees are doing. Leading the charge there are individuals like this uh, Ocasio-Cortez, who's going to be a, a member of Congress after the November election. She's a member of the Democrat Socialists of America. Uh, many candidates, uh, members of the Black Caucus, the Progressive Caucus in the Congress, they're all echoing these insane demands. And these people have power, and they're ready to expand their power. And in terms of the Democrat Socialists of America, that name may sound... Um, safer than, say, the Revolutionary Communist Party of the USA, but I found an article written last fall by Ron Radash, who has written extensively about uh, communist infiltration of the United States, and he, he wrote an entire article on the Democrat, Social, Democrat Socialists of America, and he said, uh, well, the title of it is, Drift from Democratic Socialism to Stalinist totalitarianism. That's the title of the article. And he concluded, this is a quote from him, Democratic Socialists of America has proved that it risks being indistinguishable from the old Communist Party and its Stalinist practices. End quote. And his article lays this out in detail, how the seemingly light-hearted sounding group Democrat Socialists of America has a Marxist-Leninist fist behind that title. And they are signing up more candidates to uh, worm their way into power. And uh, I mentioned that that character who wrote uh, an article at N NBC today, and uh, for a minute I had it on my screen, or I just wanted to quote from it briefly because it's... Uh, uh, yes, the, the article was written by Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who wrote that Democrats ignore the left at their peril because Midwesterners are not afraid, not scared of socialism. They're hungry for it. And uh, this is indeed an NBC, uh, NBC published article. So, you know, he may be right for all we know. I mean, Bernie Sanders pulled it off. And, you know, when you have these local elections as well as national elections where these candidates promise free education, free health care, uh, no more problems with Obamacare navigating that. We're going to just give you cradle to grave free health care, free everything. Well, uh, you know, at least half of the population of this country now is probably going to say an automatic yes to that. So the battleground will be with independent voters and with getting uh, conservative traditional voters who are patriots to the polls because uh, often they don't go to the polls if they're not motivated, especially in off-year elections. So, you know, these leftists can pull a fast one and, uh, and, and win these elections or steal them if it comes down to that. So these are perilous times ahead 
and uh, we really have to play lookout here. Meanwhile, the Occupy movement is now taking its mask of nonviolence off, and the Occupy ICE Portland two days ago issued a communique to their comrades in which it said, this doesn't mean that we believe in nonviolence as a standalone principle. When faced with violent oppression and repression, people have the right to respond with whatever means necessary to protect themselves, end quote. So they are opening the door to direct action. And one of the groups behind Occupy ICE USA is a group called Direct Action, which is very hardcore and often has gone on the physical attack uh, when the uh, uh, when the occasion presents itself. For example, when there's a much smaller group of uh, patriots marching or, or marching to have a prayer, direct action goes into action. And uh, and now we see the Democrats picking up uh, the banner of this Occupy movement. And, and this is how revolutions start, with small groups of diehards who have nothing better to do because they can do this full time because they're basically unemployed degenerates who are feeding at the government trough and they have nothing better to do but to camp in in perpetuity while they network around the country using social media and all the platforms at their disposal to rile up a revolution while uh, the rest of us are most of uh, most you know normal people who have jobs and families uh, i mean are we equipped to go out there and and meet them on the barricades you know uh, I mean, who has time for that among working, tax-paying Americans? But these people are not. And as you as you mentioned that, just back to Kavanaugh, there's a rent-a-mob already in front of the Supreme Court with awesome with signs, uh, very polished signs, uh, yeah. you know, commercially made. Stop Kavanaugh. Already. Sure. Well, they, they would have had the signs made for all four that's of true, the yeah. nominees, <laughs> yeah. and you know, uh, pick the one that's yeah. actually been nominated. And of course, we should not fail to mention that. The forces of the left, of Marxism, Leninism, socialism, will have uh, doing their PR for them. The mainstream media. I mean, oh yeah, this could be a circus. It's going to be it's going to be crazy, Peter. The amount of media attention, the amount of controversy they try to drum up, the amount of chaos that they attempt to start, and it and it's not going to go well for them, uh, no matter what. But uh, we're running out of time. We only got about four or five minutes left. I just want to ask you this, then we can cover anything else that uh, you want to cover. Hillary Clinton, again, in the news, talked about being uh, run in 2020 again. Uh, Clinton eyes 2020, Bill and Hillary fly commercial. We talked about how that photograph is pretty much staged uh, in order to make her uh, appear as a Yeah, I mean, do you see that? My goodness. Again, but do you think there's a... The, the, the months ago, just a few months ago, the left was ready to throw her under the bus, to throw her into a dungeon and, and, and turn the, the key, throw away the key because of the damage she was doing with her rhetoric. Now they're thinking she's a viable option for 2020. What are your thoughts on that? Joe, it sounds to me like a uh, an attempted psyop on the part of uh, the Clintonistas, who still have considerable power in the shadow government, the deep state, and the media. And I've read several articles even from the right which posit that she could actually emerge because they're, as, as the eventual nominee in 2020 because there's so many others who are going to fighting going to be fighting it out in the primaries they could wind up knocking each other off and uh, she could actually emerge with a Trump style you know last one left standing now I don't know if I buy that I think that would be a hard sell. And plus, even even to her 
troops. And and I also read, I read at the same time that Bernie Sanders is falling out of popularity because where the Democrat Party is going now, he's actually seen as too close to the center. He's not radical enough. He hasn't gone on the record hard enough with some of these crazy new ideas that the Ocasio um, uh, Cortezes and her ilk are coming up with. So, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, memes and news is being thrown up at the wall. We'll see what sticks. I don't I don't have any inside information, but having covered the Clintons closely for 25 years, and and I actually. Clinton, Bill Clinton was at Georgetown when I was there, so I knew of him then. And uh, I couldn't have less respect for anybody on the planet than I do for the two Clintons, so let's hope they don't make it. On the other hand, some of the other leading candidates that are, are being named, like Kamala Harris, um, Cory Booker, um, the former governor of Massachusetts. I mean, there, there's a whole slew of them. Who knows who else may emerge? There could be 20 or 30 candidates among the Democrats vying to take on President Trump. It's a frightening lot. It's a uh, it's a rogues gallery, and and who knows what we will get. Um, I will just say in closing that uh, I would advise people to pay the requisite amount of attention to the Supreme Court battle, but don't get lost in it because there's going to be a lot of a mud slung and the professional groups will be out there the mainstream media will be doing the bidding of uh, of, of this and of course the, the proof in the pudding will be the hearings when the Senate Judiciary Committee holds the hearings uh, later this year which the nominee will be grilled and questioned then we'll have a sense of, of where this is going to go and of course in the meantime Trump is going to have to line up a couple of Democrats to endorse his nominee or he probably will not be uh, passed by the Congress, and let's hope he is. Very well said, and, and, and a very, very measured analysis, which we we love. Um, <laughs> that's why we Always. love you a lot. Thank you. Watch HagmanReport.com. I will be posting later this week there some original material. And, uh, hey, folks, uh, pray for Peter and his new endeavors with respect to uh, whatever he might be lining up yeah that article yeah so thank you thank you everyone thank you the Hagman family and God bless till next time amen want to give a quick shout out to Cat's Eye on Twitter who wrote to us because of what I learned on this show I became a Christian and I just got to say thank you we love to hear that kind of stuff that is such a blessing and that's uh, you know God working through this show nothing that we do and all the glory goes to him, and, and that's uh, such an awesome thing to hear. So thank you, Cat's Eye, on Twitter. All right, we have a great show planned for you tomorrow, so make sure you're tuned in here.